Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Jody Arias, remember her? In the early summer of 2008, the mortgage crisis in the U.S. loomed large. Barack Obama was campaigning for the presidential election in the fall. The world was looking forward to the Summer Olympics in Beijing, and a horrifying crime was going down in the Phoenix suburb of Mesa, Arizona. Travis Alexander, a 30-year-old Mormon motivational speaker of sorts, will be found five days after his murder by his friends and roommates in a scene that looked like something straight out of a slasher flick. Blood was splattered on the walls of the bathroom where Travis's body was found, along the sink, mirror, and tiled floors. He'd been stabbed nearly 30 times, his throat slit, and he'd been shot in the head. And his friends and family immediately pointed their fingers at the one person who they all thought was most likely responsible, Jody Arias, a slightly built, attractive woman with no criminal record, someone who did not look like the person most would connect with Travis's brutal crime scene. She was the woman Travis had been dating off and on for the better part of the past year and a half. An odd woman once you looked into their relationship, a woman who'd once slept under Travis's Christmas tree after he told her she couldn't sleep over at his house, a woman who'd snuck into his house through the doggy door after they'd broken up and crawled naked into his bed, a woman who they all suspected had slashed all four of his tires twice when he'd once started dating someone else. For over, for over a year and a half, Travis and Jody had been involved in a highly toxic, sex-crazed, torrid romance after meeting at a Las Vegas MLM conference in September of 2006. And while Jody's jealous, suspicious, and sometimes downright crazy behavior towards Travis set off a lot of alarm bells for his friends, and while Travis seemed to understand how unhealthy his relationship with Jody was, he would never totally break it off with her. He just seemed to have liked the sex too much, so he kept inviting her back in no matter what she did. And in the end, he did that too many times. In the last days of May 2008, Jody started putting together a plan to kill him. Or did she? Or was she framed? Today on Times Like, I hope to prove to you that Jody Arias is completely innocent. 
Her trial for Travis's murder would captivate a nation that had just come off the Casey Anthony trial. Recordings of phone sex were played in court. Nude graphic sex pics were shown. Jody Arias herself testified for 18 days. She contradicted herself numerous times. She told crazy lies. She gave a highly implausible story to investigators about who really killed Travis. But does that mean that she killed him? No, but I think I know who did. This week, we get to the real bottom of this highly sensationalized murder mystery on a true crime, Mormon as heck, gosh dang, play with fire too many times, and you're going to get burned edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Work and wait. I'm Dan Cummins, a master sucker, head attorney for Jody Aries' appeals team, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, help me convince others of the truth. Lucifina, please protect Jody. Bojangles, give her strength and soothe her innocent soul. Triple M. And JK, uh, oh my heck, get the flip out of here. Totally kidding about uh, Jody Arias being innocent. She is guilty as fuck. Do you think I'd lost it? More than normal. Probably lost some new listeners with that opening nonsense. Oh well, worth it for me. Jody Arias is an absolute maniac. And I was captivated by her story this week. I forgot how crazy and also how relatable her story is. What a cautionary tale. A couple quick announcements and we'll get right to it. Uh, Symphony of Insanity stand-up comedy tour almost here. I can't believe I am about to return to stand-up. Go to dancummins.tv to get tickets to Tacoma, Loveland, Colorado, Denver, San Francisco, Portland, so many more cities. Tour starts up in August. Uh, a reissue of some old favorites in the store at badmagicmerch.com right now. Triple M, enamel pin, the Richard Ramirez pin, uh, a pin of me, Lindsay, the original challenge coin, the most recent challenge coin, some patches, a lot of fun collectibles back in the shop. And that's it for announcements. Flew through them this week. Let's get into today's tale. I hope you hope you like it as much as I do. I hope, I hope it grabs you like it grabbed me. The Provo float. Remember that term. Remember soaking. Get ready to learn about a lot of craziness. <laughs> Let's get into it. Travis Alexander and Jody Arias. It's so odd, really, that so many of us even know their names. After all, Jody was not a serial killer. Uh, she didn't have a particularly horrific childhood. Actually, it was her victim, Travis, who had a childhood more on par with a lot of the serial killers we've covered here. Their story is a tale of a murderer and a victim who dated a random crime of passion. And that story plays out all the time, sadly. More than 2,000 people killed by domestic violence-related shootings alone in 2020 in just the United States. More than 2,000, just last year. In only one country. And that's only counting domestic violence murders where a gun is involved. And I can't name a single one of 2020's victims. But I do know the name Jody Arias. And I bet you do too. So what made this case such a media sensation? Sex, mostly. And a brutal killing committed by an attractive murderer. Made it feel a, a bit more like a Hollywood drama than real life. Jody and Travis's relationship was defined by sex. So much sex. And not vanilla sex, hardcore porno type sex being committed by two Mormons, which made it that much more interesting. Late night phone sex sessions, one of which was recorded and played in court. A lot of, a lot of sex pics. Uh, but sex alone didn't make this case memorable. I think it was just so relatable. Much more relatable to a wider swath of America than most domestic violence killings. Neither Travis nor Jody were messed up on meth or some other drugs. They weren't living in the wrong part of town. Their lives weren't in some free fall, downward spiral. They didn't have lengthy criminal records. There was no history of physical abuse in their relationship, despite what Jody would allege at her trial. 
They were two attractive Mormons who seemed at quick glance to be living pretty normal lives. Travis in particular seemed to be doing great. They looked like a couple out of an Olive Garden commercial. Or like they could be J.C. Penny models. Attractive but average. You know, like they, they could be your neighbor. They could be uh, your suburban neighbor. On the surface, they seem so wholesome. The last two people you'd expect to be involved on either end of such a gruesome murder like this. And being consumed by sex behind closed doors, I think that made them even more relatable. So very American to try and seem pure and proper on the outside, but be a freak behind closed doors. I think so many people saw elements of themselves in this story. Travis came across as a guy who wanted to marry the quote unquote good girl who also wanted to fuck the brains out of the quote unquote bad girl. He comes across honestly like a bit of a sneaky ass in much of today's tale, but a relatable sneaky ass, a player, a heartbreaker, someone toying with the girl's emotions, a girl who wants him to marry her, but all he wants from her is sex. I've had a, you know, I've listened to a lot of girls complain about this guy. I've been a version of this guy in moments in my past. I'm not super proud of when I've uh, let my dick do too much of the decision-making in my life. I've known a lot of guys like this, very relatable. And Jody comes across as the psycho ex-girlfriend I've heard so many guys complain about dating. Girls they want to break up with, but the sex is just so good, so intense. I've definitely dated that girl a couple times. I, I think a lot of people heard this case and just thought, oh shit, that could have been me. My relationship could have ended like that. I mean, have you ever tried to make an ex jealous or stalk them on social media, maybe driven by their house? Not saying you took it to Jody's level, but many of us have behaved in ways we're not proud of in toxic relationships, relationships that bring out the worst in us. And if you haven't, you probably know someone who has. You've probably known, uh, you've known someone who's a, a little too clingy, who won't leave their boyfriend alone, someone who gets jealous and possessive and acts inappropriately in front of their boyfriend's friends, maybe being uh, too overtly sexual or hitting on them in a way of trying to inspire jealousy. The Arias trial put the morality of friends with benefits into question as well, it made it a popular subject of national debate. Is it okay to just want to fuck someone and not ever see them as anything more than a booty call? Was Jody, while not right to have murdered Travis, right to feel wronged by him? Had she been the victimized and sexually exploited, uh, you know, uh, and sexually exploited by a man who was jealous when she dated other men, but wouldn't call her his girlfriend? Did he push her too far? I think today's story serves as a good reminder to not toy with someone's emotions when you're looking for an easy hookup. Make sure you're on the same page. I think it's a reminder that what may be just fun and carefree sex for you might not be that at all for, for uh, whomever you're fucking. And you might be inviting a lot more crazy into your life than you are prepared to handle, all in the name of getting laid. As so many of these toxic relationships begin, Jody and Travis's initial meeting was marked by a whirlwind of emotions and obsession. They met at an MLM convention in Las Vegas in September of 2006. Travis quickly invited Jody to be his guest to the company's former, formal, yeah, formal, not former, dinner. And for the next couple of months, for the most part, everything seemed to be going great. In an email to a friend, Travis wrote about how deeply he cared for Jody. I went from intrigued by her to interested in her, to caring about her deeply, to realizing how lucky I would be to have her as part of my life forever. She is amazing. It is not hard to see that whoever scores Jody, whether it be me or someone else, is going to win the wife lotto. Alexander said in that email. But despite her being so amazing, he would never, ever really commit to Jody. His religion may be partly to blame here. While Travis was a normal guy with a normal, healthy libido, the Mormon church that was such an important part of his life made him feel like that was abnormal. In fact, when Travis had confessed to having a sexual relationship with a girlfriend, Deanna, prior to meeting Jody, he'd been barred from the temple for a year, reinforcing a, a fear that having pre premarital sex, if people found out about it, would oust him from his community, a community that was very important to him. 
Important not only for spiritual reasons, but for his financial future because his uh, MLM interests were, were tied to it. We'll get into that later. Travis felt pressure to keep his sexual life a secret and also pressure to feel ashamed of it and pressure to get married, but only to a good virginal Mormon girl. He bought into a longstanding and destructive cultural norm psychologists call the Madonna whore complex, though Travis may not have uh, thought about it in such explicit terms. This complex would help define his feelings towards Jody, it appears. This complex describes, describes the idea that for many men, romantically, women are either Madonnas, pure and chaste, or sex-crazed horse. The founder of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud, wrote about it way back in the early 1900s. He wrote that men with this complex saw women as either saints or prostitutes, loving the first, desiring the second, never intertwining both. Basically, this means that people who think like this have the girl they take home and introduce to the family and then some other girl they actually have fun with. The girl they take home is someone who that they, you know, they may not feel sexually captivated by. They don't likely feel sexually captivated by, but they think she has the proper morals. Someone who will reflect on them publicly. While the girl they have fun with, she's uh, their dirty little secret. She's sexually intense, but fills them with guilt and shame. Someone who may embarrass them with her sexuality in front of others. So fucking stupid. Don't marry the girl you have fun with. What are you trying to do? Have a fun, sexually satisfied life, you idiot. Obviously, there are a lot of problems with this thinking. Leads to a lot of toxic relationships. Has led to a lot of divorces. As Freud said, where such men love, they have no desire. And where they desire, they cannot love. So ridiculous. This complex has led to people using other people just for sex and emotionally neglecting their sexual partners. Also, for the girls that you take home, these women are never seen as adults with sexual agency and desires. So it can be hard and sometimes met with disgust for them to communicate their sexual desires to their partners. And for the person sleeping with both the Madonna and the whore, it leads to an alienating experience of compartmentalizing your sex life, leads to feelings of guilt, inadequacy, poor communication. This belief system is truly not good for anyone. Everyone's getting fucked in this situation. Just, got, just not getting fucked like they should. An aspect of this complex is referenced uh, in the Rick James song, Super Freak, actually. Never really thought about it before, but it was lined, she's a very kinky girl, the kind you don't take home to mother. It's really fucked up when you think about it. Madonna whore complexes are particularly rampant in subcultures with strong beliefs against sex before marriage, like Mormonism, because sex before marriage is considered a sin. The women who have sex before marriage are seen by their partners as sinners and unworthy of marriage, which is a wee bit hypocritical because it takes two to tango. The LDS, is, uh, the LDS faith's view of premarital sex cast a long shadow over Travis and Jody's relationship. Uh, before we jump into the timeline, it is worth examining real quick. So what is the Mormon law regarding sex before marriage? Uh, appropriately, it's called the law of chastity. And it's pretty clear regarding what is okay and what is not. It reads, before marriage, do not do anything to arouse the powerful emotions that must be expressed only in marriage. Do not participate in passionate kissing lie on top of another person or touch the private sacred parts of another person's body with or without clothing. Do not allow anyone to do that with you. Do not arouse those emotions in your own body. This can be found in chapter 39 of the Book of Mormon. No dry humping even, not technically. Uh, my first girlfriend who was real Mormon, uh, I don't think she read all of chapter 39. My God, did she love to aggressively dry hump. Too aggressive. Literally bruised the tip of my dick one time. Uh, but Travis, like many other unmarried and horny moments, uh, he looked for ways to get around this Mormon sexual law. He'd introduced Jody to some pretty interesting, uh, this doesn't really count, sexual loopholes that make zero sense and are actually really creepy when you think about them. 
but apparently pretty common in certain Mormon circles. Uh, you know, before just saying fuck it and then doing whatever. Uh, he performed oral sex on Jody the first time they hooked up. Doesn't really count. It's just some mouth hugging. And the two of them often did what's colloquially referred to as the Provo float or, uh, no, I'm sorry. Provo floats coming up later. There's a couple of Provo terms. This is the Provo push, which is just an intense form of, uh, you know, dry humping, of grinding before having sex. So so that's got that's how my dick got bruised. Uh, some hardcore Provo pushing. Uh, they also did some other shit with some uh, pretty funny names. We'll talk about the timeline. Some of the some of the hardest uh, I've laughed with some time stuck research in quite a while, and and then once Jody was baptized into the LDS, they started having regular old sex. And then because of that old Madonna whore complex, the more they had sex, the less it seems Travis viewed Jody as a potential and respectable future spouse. They break up, then keep sleeping together, then get back together, then break up again, then keep sleeping together. The more they slept together, the dirtier the sex got, the less Travis seemed to respect her, and the chance of them ever getting married grew slimmer and slimmer, and that drove Jody crazy. She was being used by a man she didn't want to marry, or I'm sorry, she was used by a man she did want to marry who didn't want to marry her. She was doing whatever he asked, and it still wasn't enough. Actually pushed him farther away. Uh, also, uh, important to point out, she was fucking nuts. She was nuts long before Travis uh, and her started doing some creepy you know, uh, uh, like weird sex stuff. And before she started doing creepy, crazy, you know, girlfriend shit, she'd follow Travis to the bathroom, stand outside the door or eavesdrop on his conversations. She'd grab his cell phone. She'd go through it. She'd sneak onto his computer, go through his emails, social media messages. She did a whole bunch of red flag shit. Travis caught her multiple times. He'd be furious. He'd tell her to get out of his life. But then later he'd get horny and call her up, usually in the middle of the night. And she'd answer. And the sex was so good. Travis wanted to keep having sex with her so badly, no matter what line she crossed, he would just never completely kick her out of his life. And that good sex ended up costing him his life. Not victim, not victim blaming. He did not deserve to be murdered, but man, he played a dangerous game with someone he was all too aware uh, was not incredibly stable for a long time, as you'll soon see. Now let's get into it in this week's Time Suck Timeline, where we will examine the lives of both Travis and Jody from birth until death in Travis's case, and from birth until now in Jody's, and of course, how those lives intersected into a sexual relationship that led to a murder and also exposed some very interesting religious sexual views in a sensational trial that would captivate a nation. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. On July 28, 1977, Travis Victor Alexander is born, the first child of Gary David Alexander and Pamela Elizabeth Morgan Alexander. Pamela was Gary's third wife. She was 24. Gary was 29, with two children from a previous marriage. Uh, when their beautiful green-eyed boy arrived, joining half-brothers Gary and Greg. Pam and Gary Alexander would go on to have two daughters, Samantha and Tanisha. The family lived in Riverside, California, large inland area in Southern California, about 60 miles east of Los Angeles, with the reputation of being one of the nation's most polluted smog belt communities. Despite the marriage and the children, it wasn't one big happy family. Far from it. Travis's parents were both meth addicts, self-absorbed, controlled by their addictions. In the self-help memoir, Travis was in the process of writing at the time of his death titled Raising You. He described his father as a person who was rarely around and who eventually abandoned the family. You find a lot of excerpts from this book, if you're curious, uh, a book that was never to be completed on a blog Travis wrote on that is still available, travisalexander.blogspot.com. Travis described his mother as a woman who'd started a family way too young. She couldn't even meet her children's most basic needs. The kids had no one to cook them a hot meal, do the laundry, clean the house, shop for food, help with hygiene, care for them when they were sick. 
Pam would go on long weekend or long, you know, week long, excuse me, drug benders, then crash in bed for days, beat the kids if they bothered her. Travis described beatings at the hand of his mother who would violently go after any child who waked her up when she was sleeping off a bender. During these beatings, he mastered a way of twisting his body so he could deflect the blows to less sensitive parts of his body, such as his back and arms. It hurt less, and also the bruises could be hidden from school teachers and other concerned adults. Then there was verbal abuse. Pam frequently told her kids how miserable, how worthless they were, complained about how they'd ruined, you know, her life. Gary and Pam also fought explosively. He wasn't any better. Pam once emptied a revolver into Gary's car. Holy shit. Uh, in retaliation, Gary chopped up Pam's belongings with an axe. So Travis was exposed to what a very toxic relationship uh, looked like at a young age, to what, you know, uh, a jealous and violent partner looked like. Travis and his sisters were left to fend for themselves, with Travis as the oldest taking on the role of caretaker. They'd eat anything that was edible, moldy bread, whatever they could find in the fridge. Travis would later recall being upset that he couldn't eat the canned foods in the cupboard because he didn't know how to use a can opener. The house was filthy. He would write, My sisters and I found some amusement in the fact that an entire colony of albino roaches had broken out so the house looked like a bunch of moving salt and pepper crawling on everything. Travis would later write, To this day, I have only one phobia, roaches. There was nothing more disgusting to me than to wake up to feel roaches crawling on my body. So far from ideal childhood. Neither of Travis's parents worked. The family eventually were evicted from their house. They moved to a beat up camper shell in, her, in an aunt's backyard. The shell was four feet tall by five feet wide by six feet long. It would house four people. Uh, the family minus Travis's dad. He'd have to sleep somewhere else, you know, anywhere else, or he'd just be off, gone. Uh, there wasn't a shower. They'd go days without washing. As can be expected, Travis wasn't very popular at school. The poor kid literally and figuratively, uh, you know, was mocked for his appearance, but it wasn't anything like the abuse he'd endured at home, so he didn't really mind. He did start to find comfort in spiritual thoughts. His parents weren't religious, but other family members were, and he started believing in God. He's about six when he spent an entire day pleading with God out loud, asking for his grandma to come take him for the weekend. His mom woke up, beat him, went back to sleep. He kept pleading, sometimes screaming for God. Sure enough, his grandma came, picked him up. Uh, and uh, that was how Travis came to have faith in God. And by the age of 10, he decided, he decided to run away. He didn't run very far. He ran just a few blocks to his paternal grandparents' house, Jim and Norma Jean Sarvi. He walked in, stood in the middle of the living room and announced, I'm going to live with you now. And his grandma, he called her mum mum, responded to the call and took him in. She took in his siblings as well and raised her grandchildren as her children. His parents would never really be in the picture anymore during his childhood. Uh, she gave Travis the love and security that he craved. She was also a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and she introduced Travis to Mormonism, and he loved it. He had a stable family. He had God. Life was good. As he got older, Travis settled into a normal and wholesome life with his grandparents. He attended Rubido High School in Jerupa Valley, a city of just over 100,000 in the northwest corner of Riverside County, California. By around the age of 16, he felt like he had gotten over most of his early childhood troubles. He'd become a confident and self-assured young man. The nightmare of roach-filled evenings was over. Uh, backing up now to three years after Travis was born, Jody Ann Arias is born July 9th, 1980 in Salinas, California, to Bill and Sandra Arias. She'd have just about the opposite childhood as Travis. Uh, her dad, Bill, tall, muscular man with a well-trimmed mustache, a sweet stash, and a beard who took pride in his physical physique. He was an aspiring restaurateur. Sandra was a homemaker. Uh, Salinas was a pretty ideal place to grow up. Pretty affluent community overall. One of the most expensive cities to buy a house in in the nation, actually. Uh, the median home uh, home price of a home back in 2018 was 550000 Known for its flowers, vineyards, and temperate climate, Salinas is in the middle of the California coast, about eight miles inland from the Pacific Ocean, 106 miles south of San Francisco. 
just 19 miles from Monterey. As a child, Jody attended Los Padres Elementary School on John Street. She's a happy kid with a wide circle of friends. She loved art, especially drawing and coloring, was happiest when she was near a pile of Crayola crayons and some pieces of blank paper. Around the age of 10, she took uh, on photography as a hobby, something you don't do in the 90s if you're a poor kid. Jody had two younger brothers, Carl and Joey, and a younger sister, Angela. She also had an older half-sister from her dad's first marriage. Years later, Jody would say she was subjected to disciplinary beatings from both her mom and dad, claiming her mom hit her with a wooden spoon she carried with her in her purse, and that her dad used a belt to dole out punishments. No one else has really substantiated these claims. What people have said is that Sandy and Bill were particularly strict uh, with their daughter from a young age. And while, while some could interpret this as abuse, I'm not going to because Jody's saying this, and she will prove herself over and over to be a manipulative liar, uh, almost on par with Casey Anthony. I'm guessing she's exaggerating at the very least. Also in the 90s, using a belt, wooden spoon, that was more common than it is now. I watched her in an interview uh, say she had an idyllic childhood, and others I've watched mention her parents uh, have had nothing but you know good things to say about them and her family. When Jody was around 11, around 1991, the Arias' moved just over 150 miles up the California coast to Santa Maria, another affluent community surrounded by a lot of wineries city of about 100,000 where Bill had bought a steakhouse called the Branding Iron. Jody seemed to adjust well to her new surroundings, quickly developing a tight circle of six or seven girlfriends and taking to middle school easily. She attended the eighth grade at Orcutt Junior High School. Things seemed to be going really well, but trouble was on the horizon for the area's family. About four years after the family moved to Santa Maria, when Jody was about 15, her mom found something suspicious. Sandra discovered that a piece of her Tupperware was missing from the kitchen. Looking for it, she then discovered that Jody had taken the container to the roof of the house where she was using it to grow, you guys, marijuana with a friend, the devil's lettuce. Oh my God. If they smoked that stuff, they might enjoy music a bit more, ponder life's real mysteries. Uh, Sandy and Bill, they decided to call the sheriff's office to turn their daughter in, hoping the experience will scare her straight. It seems a bit extreme, but whatever, maybe not the craziest parenting move. Uh, my wife, Lindsay's mom, uh, had the cops called on her as a teen when she acted out and deserved she was a naughty little rascal. Part of what I love about her. She's got some lucifine in her. Uh, the cops came over, sternly lectured Jody and a friend, warning them they could end up in juvie. And Jody feels betrayed. Up until this point, she had not been a rebellious teen, but the overkill response made her angry enough to start acting out, or so she would say, you know? So uh, it seems to have backfired. After this pot incident, Jody grew distant and paranoid. Her parents will later substantiate this. She began claiming that her parents would constantly search her room. She never really trusted them after this. Maybe they had good reason not to trust her, uh, you know, after this or even before this. She's, she doesn't seem like a trustworthy person at all. Uh, Jody lied to her parents frequently. Occasionally, her parents will later say Jody was physically violent, uh, especially towards her mom. There was an incident where she got so mad at her mom, she kicked her during a family dinner. Another time, Bill shoved Jody into a wall and her mom didn't intervene after the two of them got into it. Uh, a few semi-credible sources say she once punched her mom in the face. She's becoming a pretty rebellious teen. It was getting to be a tense situation in the area's household. Around the same time in early 1995, making things even more complicated, Jody's parents decided to move again, around 500 miles further north to Wairica, California, near Mount Shasta and the Oregon border. This is another big blow to Jody. First, they call the cops on her. Now they're ripping her away from her friends. Jody was convinced that the move was intended to punish her. Wairica is a lot smaller, a lot less affluent than either Salinas or Santa Maria. It's under 8,000 people, a lot more white. 5% white compared to 75%, uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry, 5% uh, Latino <laughs> uh, compared to 75% Latino in Salinas and 70% Latina Latino in uh, Santa Maria. So Jody, roughly half Me Mexican heritage-wise, felt like it was just tougher to be the new kid here, that she stood out more. 
in a way that she didn't like. She began ninth grade in Wairika, uh, at Wairika Union High School, despite her frustrations. People who knew her during this time will later pretty much just have nice things to say about her. They saw her as a good girl, kind and caring. Uh, not sure what her parents did here, but there is a restaurant there also called the Branding Iron Family Steakhouse. So might be coincidence, or maybe Bill was running that steakhouse now. So what was Travis up to during this time? Travis graduated from high school in the spring of 95, worked a string of jobs to save money for a church mission. The following year, he was called to serve in the Colorado-Denver South Mission. Part of his two-year undertaking was volunteering to help the homeless in and around Denver. Great place for a mission. I love Denver. Very cool city, so much sunshine, so many cool businesses, solid local vibe. As someone who had spent a good deal of his life without essentials, Travis knew firsthand the plight of the people his mission was serving, and the church was super happy with how he handled himself. He spent countless days handing out care packages to the less fortunate that contained food items, essential hygiene products, and on each bag, this is super sweet, uh, he would write a personalized note. Back to Jody now. In the summer of 95, between her freshman and sophomore years of high school, Jody meets her first serious boyfriend, a guy three years older than her named Bobby. Oh, Bobby. She met Bobby to state fair. Bobby was dressed in an 18th century long black suit and used crutches as a prop for his goth outfit. So mysterious and cool. That night, he invited Jody to ride with him on the zipper. In the beginning, they were just friends. He already had a girlfriend, so nothing happened until they broke up. And then Bobby and Jody started dating. Bobby had lots of time to spend on her. Uh, he had plenty of time since he just graduated from high school but was unemployed. He regularly met Jody near the high school gates where they would just uh, take walks, hold hands, I'm sure do other stuff. And Bobby sounds like a character. He really wanted to be an actor, but also really wanted to hunt vampires. Not kidding. He wanted to go to San Francisco to, f- <laughs> to find vampires. He was convinced a coven of vampires were living in the area. Uh, sounds like he watched The Lost Boys too many times and forgot it was a made-up story. Jody really latched on to Bobby. His interest became her interests. His friends became her friends, a pattern she will repeat later. Uh, Jody was also, outside of Bobby the Vampire Hunter, miserable in Wairika. She wrote a letter to a friend on September 16th, 1995, saying, My dearest Patricia, I miss you so much. Nobody up here could ever take your place. No one up here listens like you do. Everyone here is pretty much the same as down there, except for one thing. I don't feel like I belong. I can't even join in the conversation because I don't know what they're talking about. They'll say something to me like, can you believe so-and-so's going with so-and-so? And they look so funny together. And I'll be like, no. I don't even know who the hell they are. So it doesn't matter to me. And that brings up another complaint. The only thing people do around here, I figured out two different groups of types of people getting stoned, the stoners, and the gossips, preppy snobs. Holy shit, that letter is so high school and so 90s. Uh, Art seemed to be Jody's one bright spot. She uh, bought a set of oil uh, paints and was determined to improve her talents. I've seen some of her work in uh, in documentaries and and she is actually a pretty talented artist. Uh, Meanwhile, her relationship with her parents is getting worse. Now that she's in high school, she wants more freedom. While other freshmen and sophomores are allowed to stay out until 9, 10 o'clock in the evening, maybe later, she has a dinner hour curfew of 6 p.m. Can't go out after that. That does seem a bit strict. Her father even resorted to uh, disconnecting the car battery to keep her home which was successful short-term because she didn't know how car batteries worked. And that seems a bit crazy. But again, I don't know how rebellious Jody was being at this time. It might've been warranted. Maybe Bill had reason to worry about what she was doing. In the final quarter of 10th grade, maybe to get her away from what they saw as bad influences, Jody's parents arranged for her to take part in a cultural exchange program in Costa Rica uh, to learn Spanish. And this backfires in their eyes. No time at all, Jody is dating the son of the host family, Victor, who's also 16. Bobby the Vampire Slayer is fucking out! Bye-bye, Bobby. Go grab some wooden stakes and take out your heartache on some undead creatures of the night or dress up in some more goth clothes and ride the zipper with someone else. 
Jody celebrated her 17th birthday in Costa Rica with Victor when she returned home. The two corresponded by mail. Uh, Jody was now on the end of uh, receiving long romantic letters written in Spanish. Before long, Victor travels to the States for a month-long visit, two weeks of which he stays with Jody and her family. It was then he gives her a promise ring to express his romantic devotion to her. Oh, young love. Promise rings. Lucifina thinks that's pretty cute. Uh, Jody was also in love, and she gives him a promise back. She promises to move to Costa Rica, where she uh, uh, will live, and they will get married, and they will start a family together. Unfortunately for Travis Alexander, this will not happen. Uh, let's talk about Travis again. July 28th, 1997 will be Travis's 20th birthday. Also be a day of some bad news. His father, Gary, dies in a motorcycle crash at the age of 49. Gary had been clean for more than a year when he died. And by then, Travis's mother had also stopped doing drugs and been trying to get her life together. Both were bat, uh, a bit back in the picture with Travis now. A few months later, Jody breaks up with Victor over the phone during October of her junior year. Not sure exactly what led to this, and it probably doesn't really matter. Oh, the capricious, the capricious heart of a high schooler, right? One day you're promising your undying love to someone. The next, you're totally over them and moving your life in an entirely new direction. Uh, by the end of 11th grade, Jody was clearly floundering. Small town and her rigid controlling parents were weighing on her. Her grades has fallen. Started looking for ways out of town. And then Bobby the Vampire Slayer comes back in. And they decide to give the relationship another try. Uh, Jody, influenced somewhat by Bobby perhaps, now makes up her mind that she's going to drop out of uh, high school when her junior year is over in May. She's already getting a lot of Ds and Fs. Doesn't want to live with her controlling parents a second longer. Uh, she will drop out. In the summer of 1998, she turns 18, um, that July 9th, and she moves out. And then she takes a series of waitressing jobs while BVS gets a job busting tables. Guess those Bay Area vampires will just have to, have to wait. They get to live a few more days. Between them, they make enough to make ends meet, barely living with Bobby the Vampire Slayer's adoptive grandparents. The first things seem to go well until Jody claims she discovers that Bobby is being unfaithful. According to Jody, Bobby the Vampire Slayer is exchanging affectionate emails with another girl, which Jody saw on his Hotmail account when they were checking their emails on a computer in the library. When he got up to use the bathroom, she just started looking through his emails like a fucking psycho. And then, uh, you know, uh, told him that she was going to work. She then ditched Bobby, went back to the library, got back on his account, printed the letters or emails, you know, called in sick to work, then went to confront him. <laughs> this, this kind of behavior does not often lead to good, stable relationships. The two now date off and on for a little while until Bobby packs up and relocates to Medford, Oregon. He gets the fuck out uh, where he will live with a roommate named Matt. Guess he decided those San Francisco vampires were just too powerful to confront for the time being. Maybe Matt was another vampire hunter and they could train together in Medford, sharpen their stakes and skills, maybe grow some garlic and whatnot. Jody now goes back, uh, moves to Santa Maria to live with an old friend. Meanwhile, Travis also switching up his living situation. In 1998, around the age of 21, Travis returns from his Denver mission, settles back into California, sharing a home with some other single Mormon dudes back in Riverside. Heck yeah, gosh dang guys, let's live it up. Let's get two liter bottle, bottles of caffeine-free Coke and a couple bags of Funyuns. Throw on some edited for radio, you know, Dr. Dre, the chronic CD. Uh, maybe talk about lightly kissing some ladies. Oh my gosh. I, I hear Jared has been Provo pushing with someone. Uh, Travis joins the Riverside Singles Ward of the LDS, where everyone calls him by his self-proclaimed nickname of T-Dog. Noice. Oh, flip yeah. In the LDS, in the LDS church, uh, Ward is a local congregation presided over by a bishop. Depending on the neighborhood, a ward can have anywhere between 25 to 500 active members who live in a certain radius around a meeting house based on how close uh, to other wards it is, you know, the size of the radius. In places where there's a high population of single adults, single wards 
house and advise members between the age of 18 and 30. From what I understand, based on reading off the church's website, once you're 31, if you're still not on the path to marriage, you move on from the young singles ward to the gosh dang, what's wrong with your dingling? Don't you want to put it in a wife hole ward? Or maybe that next ward is called a singles adult ward instead of just a young single adult ward or, or that. And actually, uh, before we move on, uh, the cutoff for that ward is 45. And if you're single at 46, well, head on over to Facebook, you unfuckable bridge troll. That seems to be the kind of vibe by the looks of it. Not a top church priority to get you married anymore. Uh, at the Young Singles Ward, Travis makes a lot of friends. Among them, a young Mormon woman named Deanna Reed. They meet in 1998 when Travis is on a date with a roommate. The girls in Deanna's house would hang out with the guys in Travis's house and they'd all, you know, drink caffeine-free Coke and become friends. Uh, Travis and Deanna had already known each other for more than a year when they began dating in the spring of 2000. Now let's switch back to Jody. Uh, Jody arrived back in Santa Maria in the summer of 1999. She's 19 now. She stays there through Christmas. Uh, she finds a job waitressing at a local Applebee's and soon becomes quite lonely. She is drifting. She doesn't know what the hell to do with her life. Uh, she decides that she wants Bobby the Vampire Slayer back. Oh, hell yeah. Santa Maria was 10 hours from Medford, Oregon, but she made her way to his doorstep with a bag full of groceries left anonymously for him to find. She drove 10 hours unannounced. What the fuck? Jody claimed Bobby instantly knew the care package was from her, called her to thank her, but Bobby's friends saw Jody's mysterious delivery as a pretty creepy move. And I agree. You drive 10 hours anonymously to leave a bag of groceries on your ex-boyfriend's door? That is some crazy ex-girlfriend shit. I mean, sometimes I'm sure that kind of big gesture can lead to a quality reconciliation. Sometimes romantic. But I'm gonna say nine times out of 10, it's just crazy. I've talked about it before at some point, but a girl I dated for nine months in college from like the end of my freshman year to halfway through my sophomore year, uh, one day she just brought me lunch to a pizza place I worked at during my junior year. We had not been talking. I did not find this romantic. I found it kind of scary and creepy. I'd made it very clear after a couple of weird things she'd done previously, uh, shortly after we broke up, that we were never, ever, ever, ever getting back together. I did not eat that lunch. Bobby the Vampire Slater, uh, he did eat the groceries. This worked for him. And now they're back together. Following the first visit, uh, she makes a drive to Medford on numerous following weekends. That is, man, a 20-hour round trip uh, to hang out some more with him. Uh, but Jody will not remain satisfied with BBS for long. In January of 2000, Jody confides her dissatisfaction with Bobby to friends who suggest she make a list of pros and cons to see if the relationship is worth saving. She comes up with three pros right off the bat. Made me feel beautiful. Could make me laugh would scrape the ice off my car in winter while I stayed inside and warmed up. Then she moved over to the cons column. Won't shut up about hunting vampires. Watches Lost Boys too much. Continually points out what characters are doing right or wrong uh, regarding fighting vampires for a whole movie. Has the walls of his room completely covered in posters of Sarah Michelle Gellar from Buffy the Vampire Slayer and constantly tells me if he ever meets her, I'm out. Uh, JK. No, her real complaints are unsympathetic when I need a shoulder to cry on. Tells me to fuck off on a weekly basis. Trashes my name to anybody who will listen. Tells me he loves me, but takes it back minutes later. Trashes my family and my friends. My God, if half of that is true, why in the hell was she driving to Medford to see him? I do wonder if it was true. She will reveal herself during her trial as someone who loves to lie to get people to feel sorry for her. Jody Arias loves sympathy and is incredibly manipulative. Uh, she accused Bobby of flirting with other girls, on the party line, the internet, at parties and bars, claimed he had called her the worst, filthiest, most unimaginable names in the dictionary. She added, the list doesn't even begin to mention the fact that he likely cheated on me, including all aspects of an alternate love affair, 
But if he wanted me to go away so badly, why didn't he just tell me? The uh, thing was, he did kind of tell her by fucking moving away and not asking her to come stay with him. He did not beg her beg her to, uh, to come back. She spontaneously drove to Medford without telling him to try and get back together. And why didn't she call him first? I think maybe because if, if she would have done that, he would have told her not to make the drive. Maybe because when she shows up, she knows she can use some of her freaky sex to try and change his young vampire hunt mind. Despite this list of hers, Jody now moves to Medford. Okay, huh. So he cheated on you, calls you the worst, filthiest names imaginable, trashes your name to anyone who will listen, is unsympathetic, tells you to fuck off weekly, and you move to Medford to go live with him. What is going on here? Jody is nuts is what's going on. She'll repeat this pattern with Travis, complaining about how horribly he treats her, but then moving closer to him to spend more time with him in spite of the pain he's supposedly continuing to cause for her. Adding more drama to her life, shortly after moving to Medford for Bobby the Vampire Slayer, she starts dating Bobby's roommate, Matt. <laughs> so did BVS trash her name? If he trashed her name so much, why does his roommate now want to sacrifice his friendship with Bobby to date you? Guessing Jody severely manipulated both of them. Jody will quickly find a job at Applebee's and uh, soon she and Matt will rent a one-bedroom apartment together. February 6, 2000, just weeks after moving to Medford to live with BVS, Jody believes she is now in love with Matt. Things are moving fast in a different direction. She writes in her journal that uh, this day that she feels blessed to be with a man so kind and caring. She writes, it is simply incredible the fact that we are here building our dreams together. Remember when a few years ago she was ready to move to Costa Rica, start a family with Victor? Uh, Jody really seems to very quickly hitch all of her hopes and dreams on whatever dude she has just started dating. She doesn't seem to understand how dysfunctional that is. She doesn't seem to be a strong, independent young person looking for a partner to build a life together with. She seems to have a hole in her. She's always looking for a man to fill. I'm not talking about that hole, which I'm sure she's also constantly having filled. Hey, Lucifina. Uh, things will soon sour with the new perfect guy, Matt. Just three months later, in May of 2000, she'll write in her journal about how she misses Bobby the Vampire Slayer again. No idea if he's even still into vampires, by the way. He'll, he'll just always and forever be Bobby the Vampire Slayer to me. Uh, then two further months later, in July, she's back to writing about how much she loves Matt. And then by October, Matt's out again. <laughs> she begins her journal uh, on uh, October 8th, 2000 with, I feel utterly fucking worthless, useless and destructive. Like maybe I'm failing at life, failing at my karmic lessons and failing in my relationship with my beloved. Oy vey. Jody and Matt's relationship begins to truly crumble in January of 2001, a year after they start dating. So often, it seems like Matt really doesn't give a shit. Sometimes I feel like I'm just a stereotypical woman who sits at home and isn't important. Is your journal entry on January 3rd. And maybe she really is picking some bad dudes. Very possible. Or maybe she is just walking drama. Her relationship ended with Matt, with Matt when he started secretly dating a woman named Bianca. And when, when Jody finds out about it, she drives an hour and a half north to confront Bianca. It doesn't sound like they fought physically, just went off on her verbally. Uh, Bianca will later confirm this happened. Uh, she obviously tells Matt. Now Jody begs Matt to stay with her, but he leaves her for Bianca. <sighs> Let's check back in with Travis now. Spring of 2001, Travis is still dating Deanna, the LDS young lady he had started dating in the spring of 2000 after knowing her for a year. Uh, for a job, he is selling day planners at Franklin Covey a retail store in Riverside, uh, a store that is LDS-owned, headquartered in uh, Salt Lake City. I, I, I find this hilarious. I remember those Franklin Covey stores. There's there's not really any, any more around retail-wise, just one in their Salt Lake City headquarters. I used to stop in during my early stand-up days to get some fancy notebooks to write my jokes in, as if writing, uh, uh, you know, in like a little moleskin book would provide better jokes than if I just used a spiral notebook I bought at the grocery store. Uh, most of Travis's relationship uh, with Deanna had been long distance. 
After just a few months of dating, she had left for Central America for her mission. And since then, it had just been a lot of letters. Phone calls, email were not permitted. At least at that time, the church had a strict communication policy for members on a mission. They could actually only call family twice a year on Christmas and Mother's Day, and they were forbidden to have telephone contact with boyfriends or girlfriends. Gotta stay focused on the mission. Gosh, dang. Can't let the devil or a boyfriend or Aunt Myrtle distract you. Suddenly in June of 2001, Travis writes to tell her that it's over. He has seen someone else. The 24-year-old has just fallen in love with a young woman he had met at a young singles ward in Riverside. Her name is Linda Ballard. She's 19, a student at Brigham Young University in Provo. Travis and Linda had met once before while Linda was still in high school. He'd flirted with her then, but then his sister reminded him that she was too young. But then when she comes home, you know, for the summer after her freshman year, he's like, old enough, reconnects with her, and the pair quickly become a couple. Their first date and first kiss are on June 4, 2001, exactly seven years to the day before Travis is murdered. Travis adored Linda. She is, she, uh, she is described as beautiful with a slender, petite frame. Linda found Travis exceptionally handsome. He was thin as well, athletic. Uh, she was taken in by Travis's charisma and his easy way with people. And before long, their relationship became serious. But then some distance would get in the way again and an MLM. That August, Linda returned to Provo, Provo for her second year at BYU. Travis wanted to go to Provo too with her, saying he'd find an apartment near campus and they could continue dating. But Linda, that was a bit much for her. Told him not to come yet. She wanted to wait a semester before he made such a big leap. Didn't want the pressure of having someone moving his whole life to another state for her. She wanted to date long distance and they could visit each other as often as they could. That fall, Travelis, uh, Trav, Travelis? <laughs> That's, I don't even know where that came from. That'd be a weird name. Travelis. Travis, short for Travelis. Uh, that fall, Travis is struggling financially. He's not making a lot of money at Franklin Covey. Not selling enough moleskin notebooks. He shares a house with several other young men, but can still barely pay his rent and bills. So he ends up, you know, in a little doing some job searching and he finds a company called Prepaid Legal that an LDS friend named Chris Hughes works at. And Prepaid Legal seems a little flipping fucking gosh dang damn sketchy. This company, still around, uh, founded by Harland, Harland C. Stonecipher. That's a fucking name. On August 8th, 1972, as the Sportsman Motor Club. I can't believe that's a real name. Sounds like a weird character in a book. Harlan C. Stonecipher. That sounds like a 19th century dude who shows up in a little dusty western town and starts a doomsday cult. <laughs> in 1976, Sportsman's Motor Club is incorporated uh, as Prepaid Legal Services Incorporated. Prepaid Legal, now known as Legal Shield, sells, uh, sells or at least sold plans based on monthly payments similar to you know insurance for healthcare or car accidents, but for legal representation. And it's uh, a multi-level marketing company. Encouraging employees, employees to enroll others to sell legal insurance underneath them. And the more people you sign up to sell the insurance underneath you, the bigger your take, the higher you rise in the company's ranks, a structure that sounds pretty pyramid-like. Uh, sounds a lot like the good God, Amway, maker of fine and affordable nutrition, beauty, and personal care products like Neutralite, Fizzy, and Fabulous effervescent tablets that let your inner beauty bubble and sparkle with gochi berries for skin health, biotin for healthy hair. And no artificial sweeteners. More than reasonably priced at just $8.50 per 10-tablet container. Hail Amway! Blessed be the savings! Fucking MLMs. Hurt more people than they help year after year. Feeding them delusions of riches. Uh, for young Travis, prepaid legal seems like a fun way to make money while meeting lots of new people. And it was for him. Travis would be one of the rare people that actually did make a great living working for an MLM. He had a real talent for it. Uh, Chris Hughes was looking for a person to help him build his MLM business in Southern California. Chris was new to town. He didn't have the connections it usually takes to get your pyramid scheme off the ground. 
Travis knew Riverside like the back of his hand. And thanks to his, pers- uh, thanks to his personality combined with, you know, uh, LDS connections, he knew a lot of people. It was a perfect fit. Chris hired Travis onto his sales team at PPL, where Travis used the story of his childhood, struggles, str- ah, his childhood struggles to win over potential clients and kind of becomes like a motivational speaker slash salesman. Uh, PPL was great for Travis's bank account, but not great for his relationship. Linda not comfortable with PPL's multi-level marketing approach. Good for her. Uh, she found it awkward when Travis tried to sell the company's services to her friends constantly. Yep. They'd be on a double date and Travis would quickly turn the conversation over to PPL and encourage the other couple to join. Holy shit. Dating someone doing stuff like that would be a hard pass for me. I don't like, I don't like being given a hard sales pitch when I go somewhere to buy something. I like seeing what the product is, you know, asking for someone to give me more info if I want it. Please don't pressure me. If you're pushing shit on me uh, at dinner, it's going to be our last dinner. Uh, this made me imagine like the podcast version of this. Like you hear me do ad breaks on the show because ad breaks uh, are where ads are supposed to go. But what if you met me in real life and I just went on and on trying to get you to buy a mattress or some vitamins, you know, just, just out the gate. Oh, nice to meet you too. Hey, how's your back? You getting enough rest? Do you understand how a better night's sleep is proven to lead to less back pain and over 25% more productivity? Did you know that I can get you 15% off your best mattress and, and, and help you make the best decision of your life? A little bit obnoxious. Meanwhile, back in Oregon, Jody bounces. In the fall of 2001, after things with Matt got bad, Jody does not get back with Bobby the Vampire Slayer again. She moves down to Big Sur, California, where she takes a job waitressing at the Ventana Inn and Spa in Carmel. Carmel, only about 20 miles from uh, her birthplace of Salinas. At the Inn and Spa, a man named Daryl Brewer is in charge of hiring and training employees. And Jody soon develops a crush on him. To her, he is sophisticated, older, a real George Clooney type. Doesn't even talk that much about vampires. Six months later, by the beginning of 2002, now 21-year-old Jody and 42-year-old Daryl are in a relationship. Weird that this won't work out long-term. It was much. Uh, this is a much more mature and stable relationship than her previous ones. But Jody being Jody, she does do some weird shit again. She seemed very intent on mimicking Daryl's ex-wife, an attractive blonde and successful career woman who would put herself through college by working at the chic Carmel restaurant where Jody would eventually work. Daryl's ex had blonde hair. Jody dyes her hair blonde. Daryl's ex gets breast implants. Then Jody does. Uh, Jody even gets the exact same model of car that Daryl's ex has. Uh, despite her weird behavior, she doesn't seem to have a strong sense of self. She attaches her identity to whoever she's with. Uh, Daryl and Jody do have a good life together for a while. They hike, camp, enjoy the outdoors. Daryl often lets, uh, leaves Jody alone with his son, who starts to look uh, to Jody like an, like an aunt. Jody proves to be a mature partner, working two jobs to contribute to household expenses. And they date, and they live together for a few years. Uh, a couple years into the relationship, Daryl and Jody even decide to buy a house together. Daryl and Jody find a reasonably priced house down in Palm Desert, 440 miles away, east of LA by about 100 miles. Jody gets a job there at California Pizza, Pizza Kitchen. Their house costs $350,000. They intend to treat it as an investment. When they close on it in June of 2005, their hope is to live in the house for two years, then flip it for profit when the time is right. It would turn out they had jumped into real estate near the peak of the market and soon would be saddled with a house worth less than their uh, outstanding mortgage. They would be upside down. And on top of that, Jody and Daryl's relationship would soon hit a wall. Daryl did not want to get married again, did not want to have more kids. Jody did. Their relationship starts to unravel. Now let's back up a few years, reconnect with Travis. Despite her MLM reservations, Travis and Linda still going out in January of 2002. That month, the two caravan to Utah using walkie-talkies to stay in touch over the long drive. Pretty cute. 
Lynn had found Travis a house to share with some other single Mormon dudes, helps him move in. His place is not far from the house she shares with several other young Mormon women. Uh, as expected for two devout Mormons, Linda and Travis never take things further than kissing and cuddling. Gosh dang. But Travis is getting ready to make a change to that in the form of buying a ring and asking Linda's dad for his daughter's hand in marriage. But Linda has doubts. She's not sure that Travis is the one. And that May, just four months after Travis moves to Utah for her, she decides to move on. Travis is heartbroken, then finds comfort in the arms of his old flame, Deanna Reed, the girl he had broken up with to date Linda when Deanna was on her mission. Uh, for the next three years, they now date exclusively while they live separately. With Deanna back in his life, Travis feels a sense of security and stability. He now can focus on becoming his best possible self. And in order to do that, he develops some interesting routines. Uh, begins each day with a motivational exercise. On a three by five uh, index card, he lists the six things he believes are essential to do every day. Prayer, reading scripture, reading 10 pages of a good book, listening to 30 minutes of personal development lectures, working out, and making money. Okay, fine. Uh, I would probably add jerking off that list, but maybe he didn't feel like he needed a reminder for that. Uh, he wrote the same list on a new index card every morning until the six items became a routine part of his day. As time goes on, he adds a seventh item to the list, then an eighth, and so on. He also creates other lists of things he wanted to do just for fun. Maybe Jerkinoff made that list. He created another list of things he needed to do out of necessity. And actually, since he was celibate uh, due to his uh, strict religious ideals, that's the list Jerkinoff probably fell on. I mean, if you don't have sex and you don't jerk off in your 20s, you know, you're going to fucking explode. Uh, in reality, the kind of things that made his list went from uh, updating his calendar uh, to 30 minutes of practicing Spanish. Once the lists were made, he would study them, ask himself, if this was all you get done, would it be an amazing day? Sometimes the answer would be yes. Other times it would be no. Either way, he wouldn't start his day unless he could say that it was going to be one for the ages. Uh, wow. I believe in having a plan. I actually do find daily affirmations to be very helpful, but he took it to the next level. And these lists did help him. And I honestly respect the discipline he employed here. I joke around, but this is not a bad idea if you need help focusing and you need help getting more productivity out of your day. I print a checklist every week to make sure I'm knocking out what I need to do. Uh, with this routine, Travis became more confident and improved in his public speaking skills. He organizes events now and meetings for large groups of people, selling a shit ton of MLM lawyer insurance. Dan and Travis were together for about a year by the spring of 2003, when she now tells him she wants to get married and start a family. She's 24, getting pretty old, getting pretty old maid by Mormon standards. Travis is 25, and this time he's the one who is not ready for marriage. But they stay together a while longer. In 2004, uh, Dan learns that her company is relocating its operation to North Phoenix, Arizona. Travis wants to buy property, but it, it is priced out of the Southern California market, so he's eager to go with her. He travels to the area a couple months ahead of Deanna to look at property. He first looks in Mesa, 20 miles east of Phoenix. It has a large Mormon population. Almost immediately, he finds a five-bedroom house on Queensboro Avenue in Mesa for the right price. The house is huge, 4,500 square feet. Uh, he thinks the enormous house will be a great investment. The more bedrooms, the more roommates, he can have him help pay his mortgage. In Mesa Travel, uh, Travis joins the local LDS church on Hawes Road, quickly becomes a popular member of its young single adult ward. To help pay his mortgage, he rents out rooms to church members, friends, and singles looking for a monthly arrangement. And it's not long before he has a full house, all young men who are either affiliated with Mormonism, PPL, or you know, most often both. The church was Travis's best source for PPL sales, sales by far. Uh, Deanna does not move in with him. She gets her own place, right? Their families, the church, they would frown big time on some unmarried cohabitation. That could lead to a lot of Provo pushing, a dangerous amount. Uh, sounds like it was a fun house he lived in. There was an open door policy. The roommates would gather to watch UFC fights, have parties, you know, parties with no alcohol. <laughs> Let's not get crazy. 
But you can bet your sweet bottom they had a whole mess of sugar. And let me tell you, you can get pretty flipped up if you eat too many double-stuffed Oreos. Oh my heck, the room is spinning. My tum-tum hurts. This party's wild. Uh, on Halloween, Travis and Deanna dressed as Johnny Lingo, a Polynesian trader, and Mahana, his Samoan wife, from the 1969 film Johnny Lingo, produced by the LDS Church. Uh, okay, that seems a, a bit awkward. Uh, they played the newlywed game, came within two points of winning, beating other couples that have been together for years, but still Travis is conflicted about marrying her. Why? Possibly the old Madonna whore complex we talked about earlier. What Travis's roommates and friends do not know was that he and Deanna had begun having, you guys, sexual relations. What the flip? He provo pushed his clean ween right out of his good boy slacks, past her Mormon muff, and straight into her holy spirit hole. Jeez Louise, heaven to Betsy. These sexual relations are making Travis question whether or not Deanna is marriage material. The two keep their physical relationship a secret for more than a year before going to the respective bishops to confess. Uh, the weight of the sin became too much. And in the LDS church, at least at that time, the confessions took place face-to-face in the bishop's office. First, the repentant person reveals his or her sin, at which point the conversation turns to demonstrating a desire to change. The process continues with weekly meetings with the bishop who shares applicable scripture and spiritual advice. When she confesses, Deanna feels supported and cared for by her community. Travis does not. His temple recommends that his ID card type thing uh, lets him go into Mormon temples be taken away. Neither Travis nor Deanna are now allowed to participate in sacraments in their churches for a time. Deanna goes through a 10-month repentance process. Travis's bishop won't won't let him back in for a year. And the stress of all this seems to have helped lead to the end of their relationship. Now Travis has experienced firsthand that if he sleeps with a woman and is open about it, he will be punished by his community. The same community that had essentially saved him from an abusive mother and terrible childhood, you know, a deadbeat dad, is now ousting him on the basis of premarital sex. This experience will impact his relationship with Jody Arias. And their timelines are about to intersect, by the way. Uh, but first, in 2005, Travis gets a puppy. He gets a black pug. He'd always loved pugs because they were the dogs his mom mom loved, and he names his puppy Napoleon. But because he hadn't been celibate, little known rule, the church makes him put it down. If you can't keep your wing clean and your good boy slacked, you don't get to have a fucking puppy. Rules is rules. Amen. Of course, that's not true. I don't know why I think things like that. I really don't. I'm sick. Uh, meanwhile, back in Jody world, uh, she's about to make the move that will bring her to meeting Travis Alexander. Fed up with her finances, working at CPK, Jody starts looking around for better options. And when you know it, a coworker introduces her to prepaid legal. Hail the good God, Amway. That Amway craziness is a reference that comes from the Nexium cult episode, by the way, if you were thoroughly confused. A prepaid legal seemingly unlimited income ceiling appeals to her because she is scared and desperate. She's been making some rough financial choices recently. She started putting about a half of her mortgage on credit cards. Her financial situation is becoming pretty precarious. And also, while she's still living with Daryl Brewer, they haven't officially broken up yet, but their relationship is fizzling to an end. They're no longer sleeping together. Uh, back to her financial woes, Jody is counting on prepaid legal to solve her money problems. In September of 2006, the now 26-year-old decides to attend PPL's Las Vegas convention a four-hour drive away. And it is here where Jody and Travis will meet. Before I share that meeting, this seems like the least obnoxious spot for today's sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book? play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? 
The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything... Is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. 
I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks again for listening to Time Suck Sponsors. We're so lucky to have them. Now let's jump into Jody Aries' first meeting with Travis Alexander. On September 13th, 2006, Jody and Travis meet at the MGM Grand Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas at the Rainforest Cafe. I have eaten there myself. Uh, Jody was impressed when she met the single 29-year-old. Travis had done well in PPL. He'd done exactly what she was hoping to do. He was such a successful salesman that by early 2006, he'd already become an executive director by achieving at least 75 sales in one month, including sales made by those underneath him. He was now earning close to the $100,000 mark, which was the level at which salespeople were awarded a special ring for executives known as ring earners. Noice. Can get a cool ring. What a tremendous honor. I wonder if you could get like a cape at the $500,000 level, maybe a, maybe a ceremonial sword at the million dollar level. Maybe get a wizard hat. Uh, Jody was a newcomer who'd first started working with PPL that March. She wasn't making shit like the majority of people at any given MLM. Uh, Jody just finished lunch, was standing with a group of people near the gorilla bench at the entrance to the Rainforest Cafe when Travis walked up to her and introduced himself. They then went for a stroll to the casino, wandered away from the group. He was interested. Travis invited Jody to be his guest at the executive director's banquet that very night. Jody initially turned down the invite because she didn't have anything to wear, but her friends told her to go. It would be a good experience. Then Sky Hughes, wife of Travis's friend Chris Hughes, offered to loan Jody a dress. And when Jody emerged wearing it, Travis was blown away. Thought she was gorgeous. She was five foot six, 115 pounds, curvy for a thinner woman, a blonde bombshell. And they spent the next five days hanging out. On Sunday, the last day of the conference, the two met for breakfast alone. Oh my gosh, unchaperoned! Afterward, Jody accompanied Travis to the front desk where he checked out of the hotel, got in a taxi for the airport. She gave him her phone number. He reached out the very next day. And then things got serious fast for the two of them. Travis was 10 months shy of his 30th birthday, still unmarried. An odd thing in the Mormon church. He didn't, uh, if he didn't get married soon, he's going to start looking weird, going to start hurting his PPL networking. He feels pressure to get married. Jody, meanwhile, 26, wants to get married and start a family. Both of them think their romantic luck has turned around. Soon became a nightly ritual that Travis would call Jody around 8 p.m. when she's getting home from her job at a restaurant. PPL not working for her. She didn't have the personality for it, uh, but she'll stick with it. The phone calls quickly become longer, even more frequent, multiple calls a day soon. As the days go on, Travis invites Jody to join him at Chris and Sky Hughes' home in Murrieta, California, the first weekend after they'd met. Jody now quickly breaks things off officially with Daryl. She goes to Murrieta. And she and Travis uh, socialize with other guests who are there for a party. When the other guests leave, Travis and Jody go to separate bedrooms and then scandal. Travis comes to see her in her bedroom after everyone else had gone to sleep. It was a rendezvous. They had planned earlier in the night. Travis came on hot and heavy right away. She didn't resist. They made out. Travis began taking off her clothes. Then he performed oral sex on her, gave her a little mouth hug, and she reciprocated. Sky Hughes would later say this did not happen. She said that Jody lied about this because the following morning, Travis told her that he and Jody had kissed, but he, you know, he respected her too much to move too quickly. Now, could this have been a lie to throw off his Mormon friend's suspicions to not get in trouble again with the church? I think so. Travis did boast to some other friends, some guy friends, that Jody wanted the T-Dog, quote unquote. 
Sky, Chris, and Jody, uh, and Travis then go to uh, Sunday morning church service before Jody leaves for Palm Desert. The next week, when Travis is driving back to Mesa, he makes a stop in Palm Desert to give Jody the Book of Mormon. Well, he didn't. He didn't just give her that. Didn't drive all the way there to just uh, give her a, a book. Get, get the flip out of here. According to Jody, uh, Travis also tells her that he's horny. And they decide to act on it, driving separately to a local park. She's still living with Daryl. Uh, there, she uh, says Travis gets into her car and uh, she performs oral sex on him. More some more mouth hugging when it's over. Jody recalls that Travis readjusted the car visor. He had pulled down and put his pants back on. Jody recalled that he refused to kiss her afterwards, saying it was gross. He kissed her on the cheek and left. Classy. Uh, later, Jody says she gets a voicemail from Travis, in which she expresses regret about the experience. Oh, boy. Despite his wean shame, Travis and Jody continue to speak on the phone for hours every night. The calls now typically occur after 11 p.m., sometimes as late as 3 a.m. Uh, some dirty talk start, starting to go on now. After a month of talking, the two meet again in person in October. They plan to meet up for a romantic vacation, i.e. Fuckfest, in Ehrenberg, Arizona. On the Arizona-California border, a little dusty community home to about 1,000 people kind of in between uh, where the two lived. Uh, Jody said they were physical from the moment she walked through the door and they started passionately kissing. Soon they were both naked on the bed doing some Provo pushing. Grind, grind, grind. According to Jody, the rest of the weekend is spent engaging in mutual oral sex, watching television, eating at Sizzler, and going to a movie. And uh, sounds like a fucking great weekend. Blowjob, Sizzler, in the movies. Living the dream. Hey, Lucifina. Uh, wasn't the kind of romantic vacation Jody had pictured. But Travis did spend some time talking to her about spirituality as well, you know, in between blowjobs. So her hopes held out for this turning into something more than a series of hookups. Interesting. She says Travis also told her about some unexpected aspects of Mormonism on this trip. Here we go. Oh boy, here we go. I laughed so fucking hard when I came across the info I'm about to share with you. <laughs> Travis taught her about his interpretation of the church's law of chastity. Vaginal sex was off limits, kind of. Uh, but everything else, oral, anal, totally fine. Uh, it may seem like Travis is just trying to trick her here, but in practice, LDS youth have often come up with uh, some very interesting interpretations of virginity over the years. For a lot of Mormons, if the penis is not thrusting back and forth inside the vagina, uh, everyone's still a virgin. No one's sinning. Uh, anal sex has become a common way for different groups of young Mormons over the years to have sex and think that they are still virgins. I shit you not. <laughs> it feels like there's a pun there. Uh, it's called the old poop hole loophole. Truly not making this up. <laughs> Poop hole, uh, the poop hole loophole. Uh, oral sex, seen by many is okay. And then there's the weirdest sexual act to me called soaking, also known as parking, <laughs> marinating, and the Provo float. Good God, this is weird. The Provo float is when a dude sticks his penis inside the vagina, but doesn't move it or come. Just no thrusting, no grinding, no climax. You just pop it in and you hold it still and bingo, bingo, it doesn't count. What the fuck? Religion meets sex. It twists folks into the strangest situations and rationalizations. Oh, it just never ceases to amuse me. This is the craziest logic. Really think about this. Think about this logic. Think of people convincing themselves that God is totally cool, totally cool with you sticking your dick into a pussy if you don't move it around. That makes God seem like some kind of weird, super creepy perv. Watching you have sex, just like, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, that's nice. That's nice. That's good. Oh, that's, that's wholesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's virtuous. 
That's what? Oh, no! What the flip are you doing? Stop moving it! No, no, no! No, that's devil sex! Oh, now I have to burn you! <laughs> and then apply that to anal sex. Think about how weird it is to think that God doesn't want you to have vaginal sex, but God is so cool with anal. <laughs> Again, it makes God seem like a, like a weird, creepy perv just hiding in the bushes and watching you fuck. Just, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's nice. Oh, that's holy. Oh, that's holy. Oh, stick in that butt. Yeah, yeah, oh, frick that butt. Frick that butt so hard. Mm, no, no, not in the puss. Oh, God. <laughs> now you gotta burn. It's so insane. It's, it is so fucking insane what people convince themselves of. Uh, so now Travis and Jody are doing everything except having the most basic vanilla form of sex. <laughs> Jody claims uh, later she's bummed out by how sex focused Travis is. She says, you know, she likes the sex, but, you know, she wanted more than sex from Travis. She wanted more than just some, some poop hole loop open. Poop hole loop open. Poop hole loop holing. There we go. The whole weekend in Ehrenberg uh, has the air of an illicit tryst for her, not the romantic, uh, classy vacation she envisioned. Travis's sexual guilt rears his head again. Uh, after the weekend, he doesn't call her for two days. Uh, when she calls and texts, he doesn't answer. But then a week, uh, week later, he leaves her a kind and reassuring voicemail. He's probably thinking about her butt. <laughs> they start up their nightly phone calls again, talking about spiritual and sexual matters. The following month, on November 11th, uh, 2006, Travis sends Jody a dick pic, as the good Lord intended his spiritual shepherds to do. Travis is not thrusting in that old devil puss. So everything's kosher. Two weeks later, November 26, 2006, Jody's baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. And then, uh, <laughs> interesting, makes a God and dick here going on in this story. Uh, during her pre-baptism interview, the branch president asked if she's obeying the law of chastity. And she supposedly replied, uh, based on a technical sense, yes. Thank the Lord for the poop hole loophole. Uh, at Jody's request, Travis performed the, performed the ceremony. The baptism took place at the LDS church in Palm Desert. And afterwards, according to Jody, they go back to her house and have anal sex. You know, the, the kind that God likes, you know? As one does, directly following a baptism, you got to frick that Mormon butt. Frick it so hard. You got to pound that loophole. Uh, this is insane. Around this time, Travis's friends start to have doubts about Jody. Not sure that she's right for him. Travis's friends skeptical about Jody's faith. They notice she doesn't seem that dedicated to Mormonism. She'd sit and look at the Book of Mormon, but only when Travis was in the room. Uh, she would glance at him frequently like she was making sure that he saw her reading it. And although Travis's friends were Mormon, you know, they, they didn't just sit around reading the Book of Mormon all day. It, it was like Jody was just, you know, faking it all, just doing what she thought Mormons did, trying to impress everyone, which sounds uh, right for her. Uh, Jody quickly becomes consumed by her relationship with Travis, which also sounds right for her. Uh, when she takes shifts at Bing Crosby's, a restaurant in Palm Desert she now works at, her coworkers uh, will see her in her car while she's supposed to be working. She's uh, trying to call or text Travis. Uh, won't go back to work until she hears back from him. That Christmas, Jody goes to Arizona for a prepaid legal corporate event in Phoenix. Phoenix, of course, right by Mesa, Travis. Travis is putting up about 30 people at his place for this event, but tells Jody, awkward, he doesn't have room for. Her. Can't let the church find out that they're hooking up. Not after all that trouble, you know, they got in he got in last time. Several hours later, Jody appears at, this, at his house uninvited. It is particularly awkward because Travis's ex-girlfriend, Deanna, is one of his guests. Jody walks right in, announces herself as Travis's girlfriend, while Travis is in the middle of giving a motivational presentation. That night, Travis tells people that Jody is not his girlfriend. They've just gone on a couple of dates. This is super awkward. And so the real craziness of their relationship begins. Jody spends the night anyway. Friends remember coming downstairs the following morning to find her asleep 
under the Christmas tree. Like she's one of Travis's presents. That's so uncomfortable. After the Christmas party, even more awkward for Jody, Travis tells her that he's been seeing other women. He tells her in plain terms their relationship is not exclusive. He is freaking other bottoms, thrusting loopholes, doing some holy soaking and some other sweet pusses. I don't know. Uh, Jody now goes on a few dates with some men back in California. Make sure to tell Travis about it. You know, tell him, tells him how obsessed these men are with her playing this jealousy game. She also visits his friends, the Hughes, PPL bigwigs. Tells him about how men just won't leave her alone. But she doesn't care about him because her heart belongs to Travis, her heart and her loophole. And this jealousy mind game, uh, this works with Travis for a little while. In uh, February of 2007, Travis and Jody come out now as an official couple. Uh, after, you know, kind of messing around since September of 2006. Jody made Travis jealous and she had pulled off some classic Aries manipulation to accomplish this. She'd become friendly with Sky Hughes, you know, uh, Chris's wife. Jody tells Sky that she feels like Travis doesn't care about her. Like he just wants, you know, some soaking and some loopholing from her. Uh, Sky then emails Travis, reprimands him for using Jody sexually without giving her a commitment, calling him a, quote, heart predator, saying Jody was being treated horribly. You weren't beating her physically, but you were emotionally. She has given you everything, all control, and you give her 3 a.m. calls and makeout fests. A little more than making out was going on, whatever. Uh, now Travis feels pressure to make her his girlfriend. So, you know, his uh, this guy's not his boss's wife. Chris isn't really his boss, but, you know, he's a big wig in PPL and he's a big wig in PPL. He doesn't want, uh, you know, his uh, peers thinking he's a womanizer, some dirtbag. Uh, he also knows that Jody isn't right for him. He tells Sky that he'll end it with Jody and Sky encourages Jody to move on. Jody starts faking emails now from anonymous stalkers who say that Travis doesn't deserve her. Sending these emails to Travis, uh, he's far, far too away to protect her. And then on the first weekend of February, Jody shows up at Travis's house unannounced. And then rather than be upset, I guess he's happy to see her. Her craziness worked. And as of February 2nd, 2007, now they're a couple. And now they have so much sex, all the kinds, even that super kinky, hardcore porn kind when you're thrusting back and forth inside a vagina, the kind that God hates. Uh, Jody would later claim in the trial that Travis had a voracious sexual appetite and sometimes bordered, sometimes bordered on abuse. Travis's friends remember that it is Jody, not Travis, who seems to have had a hyperactive libido. Seems like they both did. Uh, one of Travis's best friends, Taylor Searle, will later say, we were driving one day and he was talking about Jody and was describing how she was a nymphomaniac. He was explaining that Jody had gotten herself off eight times in one day. Might've been nine, might've been 13. It was a high number, but he was just using that as an illustration of how over the top she was. He was like, she's crazy. She's a nymphomaniac. And we were like, whoa, <laughs> oh gosh, dang. And uh, he was just explaining just how big of a nympho she was. That's his statement. So much sexual concern in this group. And probably a lot of hypocrisy. I imagine Taylor, you know, and Travis's uh, friends, other friends, judging areas for being a nympho and then, and then soaking their weens and their ladies before having anal sex with them to finish and then somehow feeling sexually righteous. Uh, Jody was not endearing herself to Travis's uh, sexually repressive social circle. They didn't like how sex positive she seemed. At an LDS wedding in the spring of 2007, Jody came up behind Travis and started sucking on his ear in the middle of church. Egad, gosh dang. Well, what if the children see that affection? They might want affection themselves someday. Uh, Travis seemed oblivious to her inappropriate behavior. Others were not. Sky, who'd gone to bat for Jody, started doubting that she'd made the right call. She didn't care for the ear sucking. Uh-uh. Scandalous. She didn't care for how Jody seemed to be doing some shady shit out in public to try and make Travis jealous either. One time at a hotel, Sky saw Jody walk over. Uh, past an open door where a group of men were involved in a business meeting and flip her hair and check herself out and in the reflective glass for them to see. 
Uh, she had plenty of opportunity to observe Jody firsthand because the Hughes house was the midway point between Travis's and Jody's house. They'd meet there fairly often. Uh, one time, Sky caught Jody listening at the door while Travis was on a phone call. Uh, also caught her lingering outside the bathroom, waiting for Travis to come out. And then she told the Hughes, quite frankly, that she had found flirtatious emails from other women to Travis when snooping on his emails, then forwarded those emails to her own account. Why do people do shit like that? <laughs> I've had someone look at my phone before uh, without asking, and, and, I, and I told them if, if they ever did that again, like we were done. And I meant it. That we'd break, and, and then we would break up a month or so later. And she didn't even find anything. I wasn't even doing anything. I told her, I'm not going to play those games. If you don't trust me, just go. Find someone else. Like, I hate it when people keep catching their partner doing shit, and then they just keep staying with them. Fuck that. If you know someone's cheating, just leave them. Like, like you think you can't for whatever reason, then start making a plan. But don't become a paranoid weirdo, always wondering what they're up to and delusional enough to think that you can change them. When has anyone ever caught their partner cheating on them over and over and over, especially early in the relationship when it's supposed to be this like honeymoon phase, best behavior, and then, uh, you know, it's gone on to become this uh, healthy, happy, committed relationship. I'm sure it happens on rare occasion, the exception to the rule. So easy for these two to break up at this point. The easiest. It's not like Jody and Travis have their financial futures tied together. Uh, our kids, you know, they're not, they're not worried about custody and all that. They don't live together. They don't live in the same city. You catching flirting with other girls at this point? Have some fucking respect for yourself. Just go find someone better. Believe that you're worth it. If you don't believe that, odds are those who date you will not believe it either. Might not be fair, but true. Fucking Jody, Addicted to trying to win over guys who just don't want her like she wants to be wanted. Uh, in April of 2007, when Jody and Travis are staying with him, Chris and Skye now confront Travis about Jody. Jody is creeping them out. They begin to express their concerns about Jody when Skye gets a weird feeling that Jody is listening at the door. They quickly change the subject. Sure enough, moments later, Jody knocks at the door, asks what they're doing. Travis tells her that he was just about to head to bed, and then she leaves. Well, they think she leaves. 40 minutes later, Travis gets the feeling that they're being, uh, you know, that she's eavesdropping on them, that she's nearby listening somehow. He opens the front door and she's just standing there. She's just been hanging around outside the door for 40 minutes after claiming that she left, trying to listen to the fucking wall. That is creepy. If I'm Travis, holy shit, is the relationship over right then and there? Find another loophole to frick. I had a girl I was dating pretty seriously in between my ex-wife and Lindsay uh, looked at my phone, find this text thread of uh, me flirting with the girl that I was casually seeing, hooking up with whatever, but before we had started dating. And then she called me on the road one time, accuses me of cheating with this person because she had written this person's name down, thought she had found her online. She had not, just found somebody else by the same name. Found out that girl that I'd never even met happened to live an hour or so away from the city I happened to be doing shows at uh, th that weekend. Based on that and nothing else, you know, is furious and I was, I was like, this is fucking crazy. We're done. Uh, I told her that, you know, like this, this paranoid, creepy, just crazy cyber detective shit. Just, I'm not going to live like that. And that was it. Came home, gave her a shit that was in my apartment. Never saw her again. Told her we were done. Ignored all texts and calls from, uh, from her from that day forward. And I've never regretted that decision for a single second. Kick the crazy out of your life, meat sacks. Don't look back. Life is too short, full of too much pain. You can't avoid to add nonsense. You can't avoid to the pile. Dodi Aries is nuts. Before she killed, it is clear she was highly unstable. Normal, well-adjusted people do not do shit like this. Especially not at almost 27. It's not like she's 15. Even then, it'd be weird. Uh, the next morning, now actually afraid for themselves and their children, uh, Sky and Chris tell Travis that he and Jody no longer welcome at their house. Travis is obviously upset by this. Jody's putting a wedge between him and some of his best friends. 
Uh, this alarming behavior continues continues a couple weeks later when Jody and Travis are at a PPL conference and Jody feels like Travis is ignoring her. Uh, when Travis's married friend Clancy Talbot has a few glasses of wine and stumbles, she grabs onto Travis for balance and then Jody follows Clancy into the bathroom and confronts her, ranting about how angry she is at Travis and for her to stay away from Travis. Jody's blocking the exit door. Clancy is afraid. She notices that Jody is literally shaking with anger. Finally, unsure of what to do, Clancy pushes past Jody and then she avoids that lunatic as much as she can going forward. Jody is unraveling. Now, uh, actually, after falling hopelessly behind on payments, her home in Palm Desert is being foreclosed on, which makes her more unstable. And it's not looking like Travis is going to offer her a place to stay or his hand in marriage anytime soon. So not knowing what else to do, Jody packs up and moves to Big Sur now, 45 miles from Salinas. She's a fucking mess. She and Travis continue to date, uh, yeah, traveling frequently and visiting Mormon holy sites in Illinois and Missouri now. Uh, they also visit places from a book he'd bought called A Thousand Places to See Before You Die, uh, visiting Niagara Falls, the Finger Lakes in New York, as well as the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, which is an awesome place, by the way. Uh, that June, Travis and Jody go on a short trip to Sedona, Arizona, and the Grand Canyon with some of Travis's friends, siblings Daniel and Desiree Freeman. They will later remember things being pretty tense between Travis and Jody on this trip. At one point, Travis pretends to be ditching Jody when she gets out of the car to take a picture, and Jody gets very angry about that. Doesn't like to joke. They yell at each other, and then they don't speak for a big part of the trip. But after this trip, they keep traveling together. On another trip, a short time later, they go to Daniel's Summit Lodge outside of Heber City, Utah. They're meeting friends there. One of these friends happens to be Eek, Clancy Talbot, Travis's married friend, the one Jody uh, cornered, cornered in the bathroom. Jody accuses Travis now straight up of cheating on her with Clancy. Uh, does not appear to be a credible accusation at all. Travis gets angry. The relationship is rapidly becoming more and more toxic, held together only by jealousy and sex. A few days later, Travis falls asleep on the couch with his cell phone nearby. Jody sneaks over and takes it, sneaks into the bathroom, reads his texts, finds evidence of Travis flirting with other women. Now, is this shitty of Travis? Yes. Did Jody have a right to be upset? Sure. Should she have been looking through his phone? Fuck no. She should have packed up her shit and left. Uh, after she reads the messages, she does not confront Travis immediately. They're about to go on a trip to Sacred Grove in Pal uh, Palmyra, New York, where Mormons believe Joseph Smith received his first vision. But that road trip doesn't happen. The two get in a fight on the phone on June 29, 2007. Jody breaks up with Travis after them arguing about the texts. Uh, the next day, he calls her back to apologize. Why? He promises to change. They don't get back together, but they both agree they may give it, get back together in the future. Jody is crushed. She wants to marry Travis. Travis seems relieved. After the breakup, he quickly moves on emotionally, is ready to start the next chapter of his life. According to friends, he is optimistic about finding true love elsewhere, but then Jody starts texting him. She calls him. He answers. They start talking again. They start having phone sex. And they start meeting up again for real sex, not just a poophole loophole or some soaking, hardcore shit, penis, vagina, full thrust. God probably cried when he was watching that happen from the bushes. Uh, then Jody does something crazy again. While they've hooked up a few times since the breakup, they are not a couple again. But about a month after their breakup, Jody moves to Mesa, stays with a friend named Rachel, uh, and then finds a accommodation from a church website called ldshousing.net. A new place, about 10 minutes from Travis's house. And Travis is not happy. He did not want Jody and Mesa. Uh, what they've been doing was just hooking up in his mind. He wants to move on. And he starts dating a fellow church member now named Lisa Andrews. She's 19, Mormon. He falls head over heels for her. Uh, she tells him that she's not ready to get married. You know, they move pretty fast at first. Travis finds himself in a conundrum now. The girl he wants to get married to doesn't want to marry him. The girl he does not want to marry him is batshit crazy and, uh, and does want to marry him. 
uh, or the girl who, yeah, does want to marry him is, oh my God. Life, life uh, Lisa, excuse me, seems a little crazy here too. She was a strict adherent to the law of chastity, took it more seriously than Travis did. This is how seriously she took it. Once, uh, when she and Travis made out, she could feel that he had an erection under his pants that he didn't even talk about. And it gave her some boner guilt. She thought it was her fault. She thought she had done something sinful to give him lustful thoughts that led to that devil boner. This is also insane. Meanwhile, shortly after Jody settles into Mesa, she gets a job at P.F. Chang's. And then Travis also gives her another job. This is so stupid. She complains to him about needing money, so he pays her to now clean his house. Why? Don't ever do this. Don't ever offer to pay your jealous, crazy ex to come over and clean your house. It's insulting to them. For one thing, it's weird. It's dangerous. Like they're not going to snoop around and then get mad and do something crazy. If you feel like you just have to help an ex out financially, just give them money. Don't employ them in your house. Jody, uh, her new cleaning job, of course, leads to the two of them having more sex. And that, of course, leads to expectations of being more than a house cleaner for Jody, which then leads to fights. And around and around they go. Some of Travis's frustrations with Jody around this time were made clear in some text messages he sent to her in 2007. I'm sick of you playing stupid and dealing with childish tactics. It's just always something, Jody. It just gets old. You don't care about anything that doesn't involve you. Just forget it. I know how you operate. If you're tired of me, leave me alone. We didn't have sex, Jody. How many times do I have to explain it? We poop hole loopholed after some vaginal soaking. That's what casual friends do. It's like holding hands, but with coming. Okay, maybe he didn't send that last one. Uh, in September of 2007, a year after they'd met, Jody and Travis go on another road trip together. <laughs> this is, it just doesn't end. This time to uh, Havasupai Falls in Arizona, beautiful waterfalls inside the Grand Canyon. When they get back, Lisa learns from a friend that Travis is cheating on her with Jody and ends things with him. Oh yeah, yeah, he was uh, still dating the 19-year-old who asked God to forgive her for giving her boyfriend a boner when they kissed. On September 23rd, 2007, Lisa sends Travis a lengthy email. I'm sick of hearing about Jody Arias, Lisa wrote. What woman would hold on for so long without some sense of reassurance? If you really cared, you would tell Jody to back off regardless of your past. So interesting. She isn't just mad at Travis for, you know, uh, cheating on her. She also thinks it's wrong for him to keep leading on Jody when he has no intention of turning their relationship into anything serious. And, and she's right. Jody's nuts, but what Travis is doing is also wrong. He's nuts in his own way. Uh, in October, Jody and Travis travel together to a balloon festival now in New Mexico where they fuck a whole bunch. And then when they get back to Mesa, he gets back together with Lisa, old kissy face boner guilt. So many terrible decisions being made. It's just nonstop. Jody is, of course, furious. Two months later in December of 2007, when Travis is at Lisa's place, someone knocks at the door. Lisa answers, no one's there. An hour or so later, Travis heads out to his car parked in front of uh, her place. All four of his tires have been slashed. Both dismiss it as a random act of vandalism, but I'm sure Travis knew who did it. Uh, most examining this case think obviously it was Jody, that she had followed him to Lisa's place. The next day he gets four new tires and then that night all four new tires are slashed. The next day Lisa receives an angry email from John Doe, which she saved, uh, filled with hostility. It mentioned, it mentioned her relationship with Travis. Uh, at one point it read, you shameful whore. Your heavenly father must be ashamed of the whoredoms you have committed with that insidious man. If you let him stay in your bed one more time or even sleep under the same roof as him, you will be giving the appearance of evil. <laughs> what the fuck? Uh, there were a number of religious references with the email signing off. Be thou clean, sin no more. Heavenly father loves you and wants you to make right choices. I know you are strong enough to choose the right. Your father in heaven is pulling for you. 
Don't ignore the promptings you receive because they are vital to your spiritual well-being. Keep your poophole loophole clean. Uh, obviously not that. Lisa thought it was Jody. She just couldn't prove it. Also, it seems like uh, Lisa's gotten over her boner guilt. Uh, maybe Travis explained to her that they can, uh, you know, they can provo float all day, every day, and not upset creepy lurker God. Uh, Jody now seems to have gone full crazy. Travis is now no longer hiring her to clean his house, but she still keeps coming over to his house. Uh, he'll lock the door, uh, lock the windows. She'll do weird shit like crawl to the fucking doggy door <laughs> and he'll come home and he'll just be sleeping on his couch or in his bed naked. Uh, time to get a security system and get rid of that doggy door. Time to call the police, file a restraining order. Things start to go missing from his house. Someone uses his computer when he's not home. Uh, and then after all this, Travis starts inviting her over and hooking up with her again. Dude was addicted to that loophole. He's now cheating on Lisa with the girl he has to know slashes tires all four of them twice. The girl who freaked out his girlfriend, the girl who's breaking into his house. And that's now January of 2008. Jody is sending him explicit texts. Stuff like, ah, I fell asleep. But to answer your question, yes, I want to grind you. And I want to be, all caps, loud. And I want to give you a nice, warm mouth hug too, smiley face. A month later in February, she sends him a, a very direct text. Maybe you could give my ass a much needed pounding. Well, all right. That February, Travis and Lisa now break up for good. Uh, Jody takes this as a sign that Travis wants to be back with her. Travis does not. Travis promptly instead starts dating a young woman named uh, Marie Mimi Hall. In March of 2008, Travis asks Mimi Hall on a date. She accepts. After two dates, however, she tells him she's not interested in anything romantic, but the two keep hanging out as friends. Travis hopes he can get her to hang around long enough for him to be released from the friend zone. He likes her. He wants to, he wants to loophole that poop hole. He wants to frick that butt. Jody, meanwhile, now decides to uh, leave town and head back to uh, Wairika, where her parents still live. Sandy Arias has become worried about her 27-year-old daughter, who uh, has seemed more and more mentally unstable lately. When they talk on the phone, she either sounds like she's in the best mood ever, or she starts crying hysterically. She convinces her daughter to move back in with Jody's grandparents in Wairika. Jody moves in with her grandparents, gets two jobs, uh, works as a waitress at two restaurants, Casa Ramos and the Purple Plum. She's not in a great headspace, Avi. Uh, you know, feels like she's come crawling back with her tail between her legs a decade after dropping out of high school. She's back in little town. She never liked living in. This is not how she envisioned her life working out. Things seem to be going better now for Travis. He wins a trip to Cancun from his PPL, PPL sales. Hail the good God, Amway. And he invites Mimi to be his guest. He's thrilled when she agrees. Maybe she'll let him Provo float that wean boat. Maybe he can soak, soak, soak. Uh, their flight is scheduled for Tuesday, June 10th. Travis takes two months before the trip uh, to really work on himself. He meets with his bishop, trying to get himself temple-worthy again. The bishop knows about his sexual behavior with Jody. Travis is working on rectifying that, kind of not really. He also goes to the gym regularly, loses some weight. In April, he writes on his blog, this year will be the best year of my life. This is the year that will eclipse all others. I will earn more, learn more, travel more, serve more, love more, give more, and be more than all the other years of my life combined. Then in another post dated April 14th, 2008, he writes, we only live once. We don't get another shot if we screw it up. Why not live life to the fullest? On our deathbeds, none of us will wish they watched more TV or read more tabloids or listen to foul, more foul music. And they certainly won't wish they blame their lives on someone else a little more. What they'll wish is that they loophole so many more poop holes. Uh, no, he doesn't say that. He, uh, I agree with most of what he wrote there, except the foul music part. I love some foul music. Uh, despite writing about loving more, giving more, serving more, he also fucks with Jody's head more. In late April, he opens the crazy door again. 
texting her now, asking her to send him a dirty picture. Dude is conflicted. Also, 13 days after Travis starts his blog, Jody, who's been reading it, she starts a weird mirror blog. Reading Travis's blog makes her feel connected to him and she'll leave comments on his blog. And then when he writes on spiritual matters, she will write the same things on her blog. She'll even quote his passages. Uh, she also starts dating someone else. Bobby the Vampire Slayer. She tells him about the loophole and suddenly he doesn't care about Dracula anymore. He has a new mystery to explore. Instead of looking for immortals who can disappear into the shadows, all he cares about is making his Nosferatu peen disappear into Jody's butt shadow. Like a vampire lives for fresh blood, he now lives for his backdoor soak. Uh, no, I don't know what BVS is up to. Probably running a weekly vampire-themed LARP in Medford or something. Uh, Jody starts dating another PPL dude that she had met when dating Travis, Ryan Burns. Uh, that does not mean she has let go of Travis. On May 2nd, Travis sends Jody this text. There's not a day where I haven't dreamt about driving my shaft long and hard into you. <laughs> my God, you are the ultimate slut in bed. You'll rejoice in being a whore whose sole purpose in life is to please me any way I desire. So he seems a little less motivational speakerish here. Uh, playing with so much fire here. I got to say, in all the true crime I've covered, he has made it the hardest for me to not victim shame. And I will reiterate that he did not deserve to be murdered. I know that, but holy shit, was he making a series of terrible fucking choices. He just kept fucking with and literally fucking the wrong can of worms to be opened. Oh, Jody is sending these kind of texts back to Travis. She's also seen Ryan Burns, although their entire relationship so far has been long distance. By mid-May, Jody agrees to come visit Ryan and begins making plans to, dr to drive uh, to Salt Lake City, Utah. There's a prepaid legal business briefing in June. And uh, Jody tells Ryan that she's gonna, she's gonna go. In the early morning hours of May 10th, 2008, Jody and Travis have one of their signature late night phone sex sessions. Uh, like uh, other late night calls they had, the point was to bring each other to climax, but this time Jody recorded it. You can find it on YouTube if you're real curious. The uh, sound quality is terrible. It's hard to understand what they say a lot of time. And, you know, it's pretty creepy. Uh, the same day, Jody writes the final entry on her blog. I cannot ignore that there is an ever-present yearning and desire that pulses within me. It throbs for gratification and fulfillment. Her loophole is hungry. Also, shortly after her post, Ryan texts her angrily. I have no idea what he's talking about here when he writes, Why don't you have him come and fuck you in the woods? I can only imagine you are so worried about me reading. You are paranoid because you have no respect for people's privacy and you dare insult me of all people. Through your actions, you hate more than love by denying me a human right of privacy. Countless times. You have a lot of freaking nerve. We are all not like you in that aspect. I love that he writes fuck in the first sentence and then later, you got a lot of freaking nerve. Their dynamic is again so toxic. 10 days later, Travis posts his last blog entry titled, Why I Want to Marry a Gold Digger. He writes, I want someone to love me for the gold that is within me and is willing to dig with me to extract it. I did a little soul searching and realized that I was lonely. I realized it was time to adjust my priorities and date with marriage in mind. This type of dating to me is like a very long job interview and can be exponentially more mentally taxing. Desperately trying to find out if my date has an axe murderer penned up inside of her, knowing she's wondering the same about me. God, that is ugh, creepy considering what's going to happen. If only he just could have committed to the ideals he was writing about, he'd probably still be alive. On May 26, 2008, Travis is on his Facebook page when he gets logged out, a sign that someone else had just signed into his account. A couple months later, he's bounced out again. He thinks it's Jody. He accuses her of being the one who's doing this. She admits it is her. You are the worst thing that ever happened to me, he texts her, repeatedly, call her, repeatedly calling her evil, uh, a sociopath. He adds that her grandparents would be ashamed of her if they knew uh, what she was doing, tells her to stay away from him. 
She, of course, will not. Now events quickly escalate towards murder. Jody's grandfather calls the police. On May 28, 2008, 3.40 p.m., to report a break-in. Police arrived to find a broken door jam at the entrance to the home. There had been a rash of burglaries in the area recently, but this one didn't feel like it had been committed by whoever was responsible for the other break-ins. The TV appeared to have been moved, but only the DVD player had been taken. Also, Mr. Allen had an extensive gun collection, which he kept in an unlocked cabinet, and now one and only one of his nine firearms is missing, a 25 caliber caliber pistol. May 29, 2008. Travis's last post to social media. He'd been working out a lot and noticed to his dismay that his butt looked flat. flat. Underneath his photo, he wrote, T-Dog's Gluteus, rest in peace. July 28, 1977 to May 29, 2008. We'll miss you, big guy. Also, so creepy considering what's going to happen. Uh, the photo was taken in the very same bathroom his body would be discovered in just days later. June 2nd, Jody packs an overnight bag with some clothes, a cell phone, a charger, and in all likelihood, and by likelihood, I mean, definitely, even though they, they didn't find the gun, her grandfather's 25 caliber pistol. She tells Ryan that she is coming to Utah on Wednesday, June 4th, the day of the prepaid legal briefing. The night before, Jody stays up late talking to Travis. Between 1 and 4 a.m., Jody calls Travis four times. The longest conversation lasting just a few minutes. Around 3 a.m., Travis calls Jody twice, and they speak for over an hour. More phone sex. She rents a white Ford Focus then in Redding, California, about 100 miles south of Wairika. She tells the budget rent-a-car staff that she would only be driving the car locally. But when the car is returned on June 7th, it has been driven over 2,800 miles. So, not quite driven locally. It was also missing all of its floor mats, and there was what looked like Kool-Aid stains on the front and rear seats. The car was cleaned before police were able to examine it. Not suspicious at all. Jody drives the rental car south to Monterey when she uh, then borrows two gas cans from her ex, Daryl Brewer, on June 3rd the guy she had the Palm Desert plates with. She later bought gas in Pasadena at an Arco gas station, first eight gallons with her MasterCard, then four minutes later, nine gallons with cash. The gas cans would mean that she wouldn't have to stop, uh, you know, for quite a while, and there'd be no evidence of one segment of her upcoming journey down to Mesa in the form of receipts. So premeditated. Leaving Pasadena, she sets off for Mesa, calling Travis intermittently. Uh, Weird that she would uh, plan, you know, uh, not having to get gas, but then not really think about cell phone records. Bit of an oversight. She also calls Ryan Burns, tells him she'll be in Salt Lake City at 11 p.m. the following night. Okay, 4.30 a.m. now, June 4th. Jody arrives in Mesa. Travis is expecting her. She crawls into bed with him. For most of the day, they hang out together a lot of time spent in bed, of course. At 3 p.m., Enrique, one of Travis's roommates at the time, arrives home from work. As he's grabbing something to eat from the kitchen, he hears voices coming from the den. Sounds like Travis is talking to someone. Enrique assumes it's a conference call. An hour later, Enrique leaves the house for the night. 4.19 p.m. Travis checks his email on his laptop in the den. An hour later, he goes back upstairs. 5.22 p.m., he takes a shower in his master bathroom. Eight minutes after stepping into the shower... Uh, where Jody would take several nude photos of him, Travis is slaughtered inside his master bathroom. Bathroom. He is shot in the face. His throat is slit. He's stabbed more than two dozen times. Pictures are also taken of his dead body. At the edge of the bathroom hallway, Travis gasped his last breath, collapsed on the carpet. His corpse was then dragged along the tile floor, stuffed back into the shower stall where he was washed clean of blood. Jody then deletes the pics she had taken, throws the camera in the washing machine to try and destroy it, Police will recover it later. For more than a day now, Jody's phone has been turned off, so she did kind of think about the cell phone situation. She switches it back on a few hours later. At 11.48 p.m. on June 4th, 
Hours after murdering him, Jody leaves an upbeat message for Travis in which she apologizes for not making it to Mesa and tells him that she and her friend Heather were planning to see Othello in early July and invites him to join them. She also calls her new boyfriend, Ryan Burns, who's worried about Jody after she'd failed to show up in Salt Lake City on time. Jody tells Ryan that while en route to Salt Lake City, she'd gotten lost and driven 100 miles in the wrong direction. Then, as she drove, her phone battery died, and she couldn't find the charger anywhere. She pulled over to the side of the road, and she slept for a while. And then when she woke up, gosh dang, when you know it, there's the charger. It's right under the passenger seat. Weird that you wouldn't look for it. A pretty shitty story, and it will not be the dumbest lie she will tell in all this. Not even fucking close. A real doozy's coming up. On Thursday, June 5th, Jody finally arrives in Salt Lake City. Ryan does not notice anything particularly unusual about her behavior. He may have been a little distracted playing some poopo loophole. She hung out with him at the seminar, and then a group of more than a dozen PPL folks go to dinner at Chili's. Jody dines with Ryan and his friends, laughing, chatting. Afterward, uh, they go to his place. They watch a movie, probably do other stuff. She falls asleep for a while. Then they leave Salt Lake City between 2 and 3 a.m. For the next few, few days, Travis's roommates will notice weird things about the house, like the fact that the front door is locked, which Travis never did, and that no one was around to feed Napoleon, which he always did. They assume that Travis had maybe already left for Cancun and just didn't uh, go upstairs to check on him. On June 7th, Jody returns her rental car with far more miles on it than the short trip she said she was taking it for. She returns to her grandparents' house, texts Travis, sends him an email asking why she hadn't heard from him. Uh, as if she didn't know. On June 9th, five days after he'd been murdered, Mimi Hall keeps trying to get into contact with Travis since the two of them are supposed to leave for Cancun uh, that morning. On the evening of June 9th, she goes to his house in Mesa, knocks, waits for someone to answer. When no one comes to the door, she goes home, calls her friend Michelle Lowry and Michelle's boyfriend, Dallin Forrest, two of Travis's friends as well. The three of them go back to the house, enter by using the keypad code at the garage. Immediately, Mimi knows something's wrong. There's a bad smell. The three move to the garage, into the house, where they find Zach and Zach's girlfriend, Amanda McBride, in Zach's bedroom. Zach's another roommate. They he, uh, hadn't heard the doorbell. The group tells Zach that Travis isn't answering their calls, and they're worried about him. Zach tries to open the door to Travis's bedroom, but it's locked. So he goes to get a spare key. When he returns, opens the door, the four see huge blood stain on the carpet between the bedroom and the master bath, and they call the police. At 10.30 p.m., officers from the Mesa Police Department respond to a 911 call at 11428 East Queensboro Avenue. They find, of course, Travis's body. There are large amounts of blood in the shower, splattered on the floors, wall, and sink. Travis had nearly been beheaded. Just before midnight, homicide detective and lead investigator Esteban Flores arrives at the scene. The bathroom is gruesome. Flores has a hard time determining the cause of death because of the massive number of wounds across Travis's torso and head. His body is hunched over in a sitting position on the bathroom floor. Looks as though it had been rinsed off. There's a bullet casing that had been carefully removed from the caked blood near the sink, but the handgun is nowhere to be found. There's also uh, one bloody palm print, very distinct uh, when I looked at pictures on the wall between the bedroom and the bathroom. It does not seem like a random killing. Nothing in Travis's bedroom is out of place except for the sheets and blankets from the bed, which have been stripped. His roommates have been living in the same house with their dead landlord for days, suggesting Travis was a very specific target. When Flores interviews the people who were present when the body is found and asks them if they have any idea who could have done this, one name immediately comes up. Jody Arias. To Detective Flores' surprise, it was not hard to get in touch with her. She spent the days after Travis's body was discovered making long-distance calls to Arizona reaching out to Travis's friends, uh, trying to find out what's going on. She also calls police headquarters twice, leaves her number where she can be reached. Uh, did she hope she could deflect suspicion by offering to help, maybe? Or did she just need to know, for some reason, what the police knew? Around 10 in the morning on June 10th, Detective Flores calls Jody. 
She offers her assistance, but claims she doesn't really know what was going on. Then says she wanted to tell the detective about the last time she talked to Travis. She tells Flores about a couple of trips she and Travis had been planning to go to D.C. and Oregon. And immediately Flores gets a sense that Jody is painting a picture of a relationship where everything was perfect. Not the impression he'd gotten from talking to Travis's other friends. Uh, they talk for a while longer. Flores tries to give the impression that he is on Jody's side. He is not. Right away, his spidey senses got tingling uh, about Jody. Meanwhile, back at the house, once the medical examiner's office removes the body, investigators start to look at the rest of the room and the house as a whole. In the laundry room, they find a set of brown striped sheets in the dryer. There was a reddish stain on the inside rim of the washing machine, along with a Sony DSC H9 video camera and a couple of articles of Travis's clothing. On June 12, 2008, the autopsy of Travis Alexander takes place at the Maricopa County's Forensic Science Center. An examination of the head reveals two oblique linear full thickness incised wounds of the right and left post, uh, posterior scalp, each measured two inches in length. There's also a one and one quarter inch stab wound on the lower scalp, just below the right ear lobe, and a one and a quarter inch shallow incised wound on the upper left forehead within the hairline. The wounds on Travis's neck were the most severe, with a number of shallow stabs around his upper neck, along with a gaping incision that stretched across the upper neck. He'd had his throat slit, a cut that measured six inches across. The cut perforated his upper airway, strapped neck muscles, and severed both the right jugular vein and right carotid artery. Basically, Travis had been cut from ear to ear, and then all the way down to his spine. It was brutal, a crime that indicated a possible crime of passion, so much rage. On his torso, more stab wounds. There was a cluster of nine stab wounds on the upper right and left side of Travis's back, right between his shoulder blades, that range in size from three quarters of an inch to one and a half inches. The most severe stab wound was on his chest, a three and a half inch deep gash at the sternum between his third and fourth ribs. The wound penetrated a major vein near the base of the heart. Worst of all, uh, the presence of hemorrhage associated with many of the wounds determined that Travis had suffered almost all of the stabbing wounds while still alive. X-rays determined that the bullet entered Travis's head just above his right eyebrow. The medical examiner determined that the fatal wounds were the single stab wound to the center of his chest and the final throat slicing Seems as if he was shot after already uh, he was already dead. The matter, of door, the matter of death, of course, homicide. Detective Flores follows up about a message left on Travis's phone by old Clancy Talbot, who'd last seen Jody at a PPL seminar in Salt Lake City on June 5th now. Uh, Clancy tells Flores that Jody had left California on Tuesday, June 3rd, but hadn't arrived in Salt Lake City until Thursday, June 5th. Clancy knew that the trip from Northern California to Salt Lake City was typically about 10 hours. But Jody had been traveling for nearly two days. She and other people at the conference had tried to contact Jody, but couldn't. It also concerned Clancy because, what, uh, because of what she had seen later. Clancy had had dinner with Jody, Ryan, and about 20 friends at Chili's the night of June 5th. Jody had band-aids on fingers on both of her hands. What did you do to her, your hands? One of the friends asked. I'm a bartender. I cut my fingers, Jody replied. Clancy thought that was suspicious. So did Detective Flores, and of course, Clancy had previous run-ins with Arius, right? Seeing her shake with rage, uh, she knew about their toxic relationship. At 6 p.m. on June 17th, Mimi, Dallin, Michelle, Jody all arrive at the Mesa Police Headquarters. They were there to be fingerprinted and provide saliva for DNA testing. Jody was the only one who declined to sit down with the detective for a follow-up interview. She said she'd been speaking with a close friend who had convinced her that there were a number of people talking about her involvement in Travis's death, talking shit about her, and as a result, she was now uncomfortable speaking to law enforcement without an attorney present. The others were uncomfortable with Jody's presence. A few days earlier, Jody had posted a photo gallery on her MySpace page of 25 photos of Travis, captioned in loving memory of Travis. 
following day, she signed his online obituary guest book. She even reached out to his family. On June 13th, she'd sent 20 white irises to Travis's grandmother. Ugh. Travis's family doesn't have any proof that Jody is her son, their uh, son's killer at this point, or that, you know, his killer. But unbeknownst to Jody, the police do. They now had the photographs from the video camera. Though the camera had been put through water, uh, you know, like, or through the wash, you know, like soaked in water, uh, computer forensics managed to recover numerous pictures from it, including some that had been deleted. The deleted photos included images of Travis, who was naked, standing in various poses in the shower, reaching his arms up as he soaped his body. One of the last photos of Travis alive shows him staring intently into the camera. It, I've seen it. It is a, uh, it's an unsettling photo. His handsome face betraying a subtle anxiety as droplets of water roll down his cheeks. Time stamped June 4th, 2008, 5.29 p.m. Less than a minute later, 5.30 p.m., another photo shows Travis sitting on the slippery floor uh, in an un extremely vulnerable position. 44 seconds later, there's a blurry photo of the bathroom ceiling. And then just a minute later, uh, another photo taken upside down and apparently by accident shows Travis lying on his back with a large amount of blood around his neck and shoulders. The bathroom in the background. The photo also reveals the right pant leg and foot of the killer. The murderer is wearing a dark colored sock or shoe, striped sweatpants uh, that are blue with a zipper on the back of the cuff. Jody had a pair just like that. And then there were photos of uh, Jody on, on the camera. Not in the murder scene, but photos taken just a few hours earlier that proved she was there. Timestamp started at 1.40 p.m. The first showed her posing naked on Travis's bed. There were four photos of Jody posing in the nude in extremely provocative and graphic sexual positions. Uh, showing off that loophole, there were two uh, of Travis, who was also naked in both images, a bottle of KY lube next to him. The police now had proof that Jody was lying. She had been in Mesa on June 4th. They now asked her about her supposed movements on the days where she had been unreachable. She said that on June 2nd, she left California for Salt Lake City for the PPL conference, renting a car in Reading. Then she went to Monterey, California to hang out with friends. Then she drove to LA. Then she headed northwest to Salt Lake City. She claimed her long drive to Salt Lake City, took her through Boulder City and Las Vegas, and then she slept in her car for a few hours at one point. And, uh, you know, her story uh, really wasn't adding up for these guys because it was bullshit. She claimed the driving from Wairica to Salt Lake City via Los Angeles and Las Vegas had taken her 48 hours. Mapping that route, including a 10-hour rest stop, Detective Flores concluded her trip would have taken a maximum of 29 hours, which is quite a few less hours. Adding Mesa to the route would have added a few hours, but there were still 10 or 11 hours of additional time to spare. On July 9th, 2008, exactly one month after Travis Alexander's body had been found, a grand jury in Maricopa County indicts Jody on one count of first-degree murder under two theories, premeditated murder and felony murder, which is when the murder occurs during the course of a felony, which the jury said was burglary. They didn't think she was trying to steal anything. The definition of second-degree burglary is entering or remaining unlawfully in a residence with the intent to commit any theft or felony therein. Jody had no idea about the indictment. When she was given it, she was celebrating her 29th or 28th, excuse me, birthday back in Wairica. On July 14th, five days after her birthday, Detective Flores and two other investigators from the Mesa Police Department, Danny McBride, pretty funny that his name is Danny McBride, and Tom Denning fly to Wairica to arrest Jody on charges of first degree murder. Just after 9.30 p.m., they execute the arrest warrant and the search warrant le uh, leading Jody from her house or from the house, you know, grandparents' house in handcuffs. Jody gets interviewed by police on July 15th, the morning after her arrest, dressed in white pants, form-fitting gray v-neck shirt and a pair of flip-flops, Jody appeared lifeless as the cameras in the tiny interrogation room began to roll. She alternates between sitting at the table, sitting at the floor, uh, back pressed against the wall, legs extended straight out. At one point, Jody whispers to herself, it's cold in here. Five minutes later, Detective Flores enters the room. 
Uh, Jody's bizarre behavior in this interrogation would go down as one of the weirdest parts of this strange case. More than two hours on July 15th, uh, Jody denies being anywhere near Travis Alexander's home uh, the night he was brutally murdered, telling the detective question her that if she had killed her ex-boyfriend, she would beg for the death penalty. She spends hours sticking to her story that, was, that she wasn't anywhere near Mesa, but she just got stuck in California. Flores lets her talk, giving her a piece of paper to show him her suppo supposed route, and that eventually he tells her that the, he simply doesn't believe her and that he has so much proof that she was in Alexander's home when he was brutally murdered. The proof, he tells her, includes her hair and her blood mixed with Alexander's and that bloody handprint that had her blood in it. Uh, he tells her there is no way anyone else could have left your palm prints in blood on that wall. Jody still will not admit to being there. She says there must be some other explanation. She says she once cut herself while bathing Alexander's dog in the bathroom that maybe the blood, I don't know, maybe it came from that. There's no reason I would ever want to hurt him, she says. And later, if I was going to ever kill somebody, I would use gloves. I've, I have plenty of them. Over and over, Detective Flores asked her to come clean. Why won't you admit it? He asks. You were there. Quit playing this game. Over and over, she denies being involved. I've never been that angry at him, she says. If I did that, I'd be fully ready to face the consequences. I'm all for the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. Oh, shut the fuck up with your Bible stuff at this point, lady. Flores then outlines the evidence against her, the bloody palm print, the gun, her DNA, the gaps in her timeline. And when Jody still will not admit it, he shows her the pictures on the camera, including X-rated close-ups of her butthole and vagina. Jody admits that, okay, <laughs> yeah, all right, that looks like me. The girl in the photo does look exactly like me, but not me. She still won't admit it. They have nude, full-body, time-stamped photos of her. <laughs> like close-up, her face is in them, everything. Close-up shots of her ass, her pussy. Travis could not have taken better photo documentation of her. Her fingerprints are all over the crime scene. Her blood is mixed with his blood. Clearly defined palm from the wall. The kind of gun used was the exact type of gun that went missing from her grandpa's house in Wairika. There's her fucked-up timeline. Everyone is pointing their suspicion at her. There's her cuts on her hands the day after the murder. She's lied so many times to the police, and she's like, uh, no, I, I don't think so. No, I, no that's, oh, that's, uh, that's someone else's loophole. Uh, Flores tells Arias that she's going to be booked into the local jail now. And she says, tearfully, this is a really shallow question, and it's going to reveal how shallow I am. But before they book me, can I clean myself up a little bit? <laughs> Flores says, No. And soon after he leaves her alone in the interview room, she laughs and says to herself, you should have at least done your makeup, Jody. Gosh. Jody then proceeds to anxiously play with her hair, rub her shoulders before uh, she bizarrely breaks out into a song. Uh, she sings a Dido song called Here With Me. Uh, and then she waits, as she waits to be booked, she looks for the trash for a while. And then she has a handstand against the wall for 30 seconds. <laughs> that night, she'll be booked on charges of first-degree murder. When her mugshot is taken, she grins into the camera like she is posing for her yearbook photo. It is so tonally off. It's so creepy. Jody is interrogated again the next day, July 16th. She's now waiting, uh, wearing a jail-issued orange jumpsuit. When no one else uh, came into the room for several minutes, she began to sing the final verse of Bette Midler's love song, The Rose. When the interrogation started, once again, Jody rambles for hours about her relationship with Travis uh, and then finally says she's going to come clean. Jody now says that she had been afraid to talk about it before, but she's ready to give the story. And she says the real killers made her scared to tell it because they threatened to hurt her family. This is, ah, oh, this is crazy. She said she had gone to Travis's house that afternoon. And yeah, okay, they did have sex a few times. Sure, he'd taken a few close-up pics of her loophole. 
Then she'd fed the dog Napoleon. And then Travis had gone upstairs to shower and shave. And then, yeah, okay, she started taking some naked pictures of Travis in the shower. Real artsy stuff where he looked like, I don't know, he was scared that someone was pointing a gun at him. Then all hell broke loose. And this is the dumbest lie I said she'd tell that I hinted at earlier. She said she suddenly heard a loud bang and Travis began screaming. And then she blacked out, maybe. When she woke up a few seconds later, or maybe she didn't wake up, maybe she was still awake. She saw two people near Travis, a guy and a girl, both wearing ski masks. You know, the kind of ski masks bad guy robber people wear, murderers who have guns. And immediately when I heard this, I did think, son of a bitch. I don't know where my dad was on July 16th, 2008, right? And he lived in Arizona for two years. He knows the area. And further, I don't know where my mom was that day. Did they get back together for that day to frame Jody Arias? Where were my parents? Where were your parents? We might need to form a mom watch group to compliment dad watch. And of course, that's nonsense. Uh, back to this horrible story. Then in this really poorly thought out script for a shitty action movie, no one would ever produce because it's so fucking stupid. She says that the people who killed Travis debated about whether or not to kill her after shooting him, but then ultimately they let her go because that seems like the kind of thing that cold-blooded killers do. They let eyewitnesses live and then just leave. You know, well, they stay behind at a murder scene. Jody says the girl wanted to kill her, but the guy just wanted to kill Travis. And that he said, that's not what we're here for. And then the man rifled through her purse, took out some of her cash. And when he saw her car registration, he said, you must be that bitch from California. Weird detail. She's not a good storyteller. Then she says they told her to leave. Yeah, go on, get out of here. And even though Travis was still alive, despite being shot, she did leave. And then uh, I guess they stabbed him and stuff and just hoped that she wouldn't call the police after she leaves and they just let her leave because that's reasonable. And then she doesn't call the police when she leaves, but she does call Travis, who she knew had just been shot by people who wanted him dead. And she left him an upbeat message, apologizing for not making it to Mesa and telling him that she and her friend Heather are planning to see Othello in early July and they invite him to join. You know, the kind of voicemail an innocent person leaves. And she drives to Salt Lake City, goes on a date like an innocent person does. I watched her tell this stupid fucking story while being interviewed by 48 Hours correspondent Maureen Ma uh, Marr, uh, who seemed on the verge of rolling her eyes at Jody the entire time. It's so great. Highly recommend. When Jody tells it to her, she changes some of the details, uh, as one often does when lying. She says that after the guy shot Travis, she charged the woman in the mask who was holding a knife, knocked her to the ground because she's tough and brave. And then she yelled at Travis, let's go. And then he told her, I can't feel my legs. And meanwhile, the guy with the gun, who I guess has just been standing by quietly, waiting to say his next line like a stage actor in a play written by a fucking five-year-old, he now decides to put the gun against Jody's head. And then he and the woman argue over whether or not they should shoot her. And then in this version, he does decide to shoot her and pulls the trigger, but miracle, the gun jams. And then the lady with the knife, I guess she's forgotten she has a knife and she's standing there waiting for her next poorly written line. And then the two masked killers just keep standing there like two idiots while Jody gets up, grabs her purse, runs out of the house, gets in her car and drives away and they do nothing. They do not try to chase her down. Watching the doc, I laughed so hard. And what happens next? Maureen gives some voiceover to a dramatic reenactment of this nonsense of Jody driving away. And she says, it was an unbelievable getaway. Yeah, it sure was. After hearing the story, Maureen says, you get in the car. No one's followed you. You drive away. Where do you go? She asks this staring daggers at Jody. Also managing to give a look that screams, bitch, are you for real? Jody says she drove forever and ever until she was in the desert. And then Maureen asks, did you call 911? And Jody says, no. She asks, did you go to a neighbor? Did you call a friend? 
And Jody says, I didn't call anybody or tell anybody. Then Maureen asks, why would you do nothing? Nothing to help him. And Jody says, my butt hurt from all the loopholing and I was distracted. My front butt hurt too. He soaked the shit out of me. Uh, JK. Uh, no, she gives a weird pause. Maybe realizes on some level how utterly stupid she sounds. And then she says, I was terrified and I was scared for my life. And I think there was a naive belief that I could pretend like it didn't really happen. And that's it. That's her whole story. That's the story she hoped would set her free. That is the dumbest story anyone who is not actually severely mentally handicapped has maybe ever told to try to get out of a murder. Who just drives off and leaves behind someone they claim to love who has just been shot but is still alive and, and they just don't fucking call the police even though they're safe in their car and they have their cell phone? No one. No one does that ever. Detective Flores, after hearing a version of this horseshit, tells her that he doesn't believe her, especially the part about the attackers just letting her go. But Jody, he's like, well, you know, it's, my, it's the truth. Jody's then extradited to Mesa, Arizona, September 5th, 2008. She's kept at Maricopa County's Estrella Women's Jail in Phoenix. Six days after her arrival in Arizona, Jody enters a plea of not guilty. At her arraignment at Maricopa Superior Court in downtown Phoenix, bond is set at $2 million. Uh, from jail, Jody schedules press conferences with local news stations and one national network, a defense lawyer's worst nightmare, because in all these interviews, she tells the public about the two assailants that she claimed killed Travis, a story the media openly mocks, and they call it the ninja theory. So just some ninja snuck in <laughs> and killed Travis and then just let her go. October 8th, Jody gets some bad news. The Maricopa County Attorney's Office has filed a notice of intent to seek the death penalty in her case, and she deserves it. I mean, even if you're against death penalty, even if you don't think he deserves it because of the murder, can we all agree she deserves it for telling that story? In order to seek the death penalty, the state was required to prove at least one aggravating circumstance that qualified a particular murder for the death penalty. In Arizona, the law sets out 14 aggravators, which include scenarios such as killing of a police officer or of a witness, killing for monetary gain, and killing in an especially cruel, heinous, or depraved manner. Manner. Since Travis was stabbed and sliced more than two dozen times and shot in the head, the state concluded that he suffered physical and mental anguish, uh, yeah, and was conscious long enough to know that he was going to die. That qualified the murder to be considered for the aggra aggravating circumstance of especially cruel, heinous, and depraved. Uh, fair. After hearing of all this, Jody does not back down from her crazy story. She'll stick to it for four more years, which is how long it takes for the trial to start. We'll skip over all the pretrial years, mostly just a lot of determining of what evidence will be allowed. Uh, the day after New Year's, January 2nd, 2013, Jody's trial finally begins with Prosecutor Juan Martinez seeking the death penalty. Jody is represented by L. Kirk Nurmi and Jennifer Wilmot, who now argued that Travis's death was justifiable because it was committed in self-defense. The story she's told all over in the media and two investigators for four years will now change drastically. With the trial, Jody changes up her look. Instead of being a blonde bombshell with tasteful makeup, now she's a uh, you know brunette, wispy bangs, thick frame glasses. Jody's called to the witness stand February 4th, 2013. She'll testify for 18 days and will not help her case because she is a maniac and an idiot. On the first day of her 18-day testimony, she tells of being violently abused by her parents beginning when she was seven years old. No one will corroborate this. Uh, this is echoes of Casey Anthony's lying ass here. Arias testifies that she rented a car in Reading instead of Wairika because the budget website gave her two options, one to go north, one to go south, where her brother lived in Reading. On her second day on the stand, she says that her sex life with Travis included a lot of oral sex and anal sex, a lot of loopholing and poopholing. She said the anal sex was painful for her the first time. She described in vivid detail in front of Travis's friends and family every kind of sexual behavior she and Travis had engaged in, including how they experimented with Pop Rocks and Tootsie Pops. 
you know, her bikini waxes, their mutual masturbation sessions. Even the phone sex tape is played in which Travis says he wanted to zip, high, zip tie her to a tree while she was dressed up as Little Red Riding Hood. She testifies that Alexander secretly found young boys and girls sexually attractive and she tried to help him with those urges. Now she's trying to make Travis look like a pedophile, which no one else has ever accused him of being ever. And herself like some kind of sexual rehab physician. Again, like Casey Anthony shit here. Uh, and then as I alluded to, she ditches the ninja theory. Now she says the relationship became increasingly physically and emotionally abusive. Travis's sister can be seen in the gallery during her testimony, rolling her eyes, shaking her head, disbelief at this. Jody claims that Travis shook her the night he died while saying, I'm fucking sick of you. And that he began screaming at me, after which he body slammed me on the floor at the foot of his bed and taunted her saying, don't act like that hurts, before he called her a bitch and kicked her in the ribs. Afterward, Jody said, he went to kick me again. I put my hand out. Arius held up her left hand in the courtroom now and showed that her ring finger was crooked. Uh, no one who saw her in Salt Lake City the day after this happened remembered her uh, finger being crooked. No one. Then according to Jody, the dysfunction of the relationship reaches its climax when she kills Alexander in self-defense after he becomes enraged following a day of sex and some kind of gun accident, forcing her to fight for her life. Prosecutors note that this was a very, very different account of how Travis's death had gone down than she had been you know, telling for four years. March 14th, psychologist Richard Samuels uh, testifies for the defense for nearly six days, saying that Jody was in a fight or flight mode to defend herself, and that caused her brain to stop retaining memory. In response, a juror asked whether this scenario could occur even if it was premeditated murder. Samuels replied, is it possible? Yeah. Is it probable? No. And he diagnoses Jody with PTSD. That's why she clung to a really stupid lie for four years, then suddenly remembered a better, more sympathetic story once her trial starts because of PTSD. Uh-huh, sure. Uh, the defense would bring on a lot of people to testify to Jody's behavior. Beginning on March 6th, Alice LaViolette, a psychotherapist who specializes in domestic violence, testifies that Jody was a victim of domestic abuse and that most victims don't tell anyone about abuse because they feel ashamed and humiliated. Way to discredit actual victims of domestic abuse, Alice, you fucking quack. A clinical incredible psychologist, Janine DeMart, testifies for the prosecution that Arius does not suffer from PTSD or amnesia and was not abused by Alexander. Instead, DeMart says Arius suffers from borderline personality disorder, showing signs of immaturity and an unstable sense of identity. Ding, 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 bingo, bango, we have a winner. I love you, DeMart. Thank you for being good at what you do. She said the people who suffer from this disorder have a terrified feeling of being abandoned by others. Ding, ding, ding. If Bobby the Vampire Slayer would have been in the courtroom, I'm guessing he'd be nodding his head you know, in agreement. Closing arguments will wrap up on May 4th, a full four months after the trial begins. It had been an incredibly chaotic trial from warring psychologists to Jody's 18-day testimony to a juror getting dismissed for being arrested for a DUI. May 8th, 2013, after 15 hours of deliberation, Jody is found guilty of first-degree murder. Out of 12 jurors, five jurors find her guilty of first-degree premeditated murder. Seven find her guilty of both first-degree premeditated murder and felony murder. As the guilty verdict is read, Jody struggles to repress tears. Oh, poor baby. As Travis's family smiles and hugs each other. Several people who had gathered outside of the courtroom begin celebrating by cheering and chanting, but it's not over. In the aggravation phase, which starts on May 15th, the jury determines that Jody is eligible for the death penalty. And then the next day, the penalty phase begins. May 16th, prosecutors call on Travis family members to offer victim impact statements in an effort to convince the jury that Arius's crime merits a death sentence. May 21st, Jody begs for a life sentence. This was a reversal from her statements on TV four years earlier in which she had asked for the death penalty. Uh, she said, each time I said that, I meant it, but I lacked perspective. 
Until very recently, I cannot imagine standing before you and asking you to give me life. She said she changed her mind to avoid bringing more pain to members of her family who were in the courtroom. At one point, she held up a white t-shirt with the word survivor written across it. Fucking the balls on this maniac. Telling the jurors that she would sell the clothing and donate all proceeds to victims of domestic abuse. Shut the fuck up, Jody, you piece of trash. So many women out there actually have been domestically abused. Women uh, who aren't domestic abusers themselves who have murdered their lover. They don't need Jody's help. They don't need her to be the face of this fucking anything. Uh, she also said she would donate her hair to Locks of Love while in prison and had already done so three times while in jail. She's a great person. Sentencing trial results in a hung jury and the judge has no choice but to declare a mistrial. The judge sentences Jody to life in prison without possibility of parole. Uh, do you think if she was a man and did the same shit, the jury would have voted to have her killed? I do. I think her looks played a part. Uh, being, attract being an attractive woman got her life instead of death. Uh, they just felt sorry enough for her. If she, if she would have looked like me, oh, fucking death. In late January 2013, artwork drawn by Jody began selling on eBay. I hate this. Uh, the seller was her brother. He claimed that the profits went towards covering the family's travel expenses to the trial and better food for Arius while she's in jail. Uh, what is Jody like in prison? Same as ever, it seems. Her fellow inmates say that she's not well-liked, uh, that she flirts with guards to get special treatment and comes across as phony and manipulative. In October 2017, Jody filed an appeal of her conviction, but it was delayed due to systematic errors. Then in uh, October of 2019, she tried to appeal again, citing cumulative misconduct by Prosecutor Juan Martinez. The judge is like, get the fuck out of here. The appeal is denied. Uh, she's now doing time in Perryville Prison located in Goodyear, Arizona, less than an hour from Travis Alexander's, uh, you know, uh, uh, less than an hour from Mesa. Excuse me. Uh, now let's get out of here and recap the strange, sad story. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. Jody Arias and the murder of Travis Alexander. What a story. Uh, before I recap it, uh, so sorry, one last sponsor. Uh, today's Time Suck is brought to you by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Sinless Premarital Sex Outreach Committee. If you're a young Mormon and you're looking for a release, but don't want to lose your standing in the church, we'd like to present some new alternatives to soaking, coupole loopholing, and staying moral with oral. Now feel free to indulge in handless sternum massaging, also known as chest docking. The sternum can be a real source of tension for a lot of women. It's where the pectoral muscles attach and rubbing those muscles with one's erect penis can be a great way for both the one getting massaged to relax and the one massaging to climax. To massage without your hands, please rub your erect penis back and forth along the sternum with your female partner pushing her breasts together around the penis to aid in the tension release, stretching the muscles. This will typically lead to ejaculation, often on the face, and the skincare properties of semen are widely known and approved of by God. So keep keeping it out of the vagina, kids at least when it's moving. And keep poop hole loop holing, staying moral with oral, soaking, and now keep it rocking with some flipping chest docking. Happy, wholesome, loving everyone. God is watching and he likes it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, that's nice. That's, that's real nice. That's an interesting sponsor. Um, chest docking sounds fun. <laughs> Anywho, let's recap now. The trial following Travis's murder in June of 2008 would captivate the nation as they followed along with tales of raunchy sex, secret meetings, and alleged abuse. It all seemed like a horrifying way for what could have been an ideal relationship to end. Jody and Travis were both at turning points in their lives when they met at the prepaid legal conference in Las Vegas in September of 2006. There was an instant attraction. Travis extended an invitation for Jody, Jody to join him at the PPL Gala. 
Uh, but it was never going to be in an ideal rela- an ideal relationship because, you know, Jody was Jody. Jody had already exhibited stalker-like behavior in previous relationships. Also, Travis knew by the time he met Jody that open premarital sex would get him kicked out of the Mormon community. The more Travis pulled away, the crazier Jody got. Sadly, Travis never did what he should have, which was to stop having any kind of contact with her. He wanted the sex too much, and he paid for it with his life. Right, His throat would be cut ear to ear. He'd be shot, stabbed almost 30 times. His murder was so premeditated, premeditated to an insane degree. Just a few days before, Jody had packed her bags with a stolen gun, rented car, gotten gas cans so she wouldn't have receipts, turned off her phone, set out to Mesa to kill Travis, you know, after having sex with him for a while. Incredibly, she left a camera at the crime scene. The smoking gun would be those digitally recovered photos. Some of the last photos of Travis alive are so chilling. Standing in that same shower, he will be murdered in a look of horror and deep sadness in his eyes. Thankfully, Jody was convicted and will spend the rest of her life in jail. Careful who you shack up with, Meat Sack. Stay far away from Jody's brand of crazy. It's not worth it. Let's head to our top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Jody Arias killed Travis Alexander on June 4th, 2008 by stabbing him multiple times, slitting his throat, shooting him once in the head, this came on the heels of a weeks-long plan to kill Travis that started with her stealing a gun from her grandfather at the end of May. Number two, Jody lied the entire time, all the way through her trial. She actually told three main stories. The first was she wasn't even in Mesa, which was quickly disproved. So, you know, then she tells the second, the ninja theory, that two people killed Travis and just let her go, which was even dumber than trying to deny she was there. And then the third, that she killed Travis, but it had been in self-defense after months of abuse, which did not happen. Number three, Mormonism and most religions that ban sex before marriage do so at the cost of some of the mental health of their members. The shame can lead to a lot more destructive emotional issues surrounding sex than a healthy experimentation does. Teaching young people that it's bad to feel arousal leads to guilt and compartmentalization and to soaking and to poophole loopholing, provo pushing, chest docking. Travis might still be alive today if he hadn't felt such shame about having premarital sex and was able to find a partner he could communicate with in a healthy way about sex and love. Number four, Jody slowly escalated her behavior towards Travis over the years. She tried to make him jealous. Uh, well, over the, less than two years, you get it. Uh, dropped by his house unexpectedly, announced to his friends that she was his girlfriend, even snuck in his house through the doggy door. If you or someone you know is in a situation like Travis's or that seems so unhealthy and unstable, please reach out to someone in your community or call the National Domestic Violence Hotline if you're in America, 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. If you're in other countries, as many of our listeners are, there are equivalent phone numbers in, I think, all of them, pretty much. No one should have to live in fear of being harmed by the person who's supposed to love them the most. And number five, new info, one more goofy LDS sexual term. Uh, One young LDS uh, said that there was a strong push for oral sex amongst he and his single friends who were horny but wanted to sexually experiment. He wrote, when I was a graduate student at Brigham Young University, and I understand this continues to be true today, there were some students who adopted the slogan, stay moral, go oral. <laughs> and then failing that, uh, many would just get married and then uh, divorced shortly after, thereafter to really get their fuck on. It's unclear how often this happens, but some BYU students and probably other young Mormons as well will uh, go to Vegas, get secretly hitched for a weekend or a few months so they can have guilt-free sex before mutually divorcing and then going on their merry ways. Here's some testimonial of this. In the mid-1960s and again during the early 70s when I was at BYU, it was called a Wendover Wedding Weekend. The couple would zip over to the border to Wendover, get hitched, and then have all the sex they wanted back at BYU. Still lived apart, and if they were caught, they were legally married. 
would file for either an annulment or a divorce with a cheap lawyer after a bit and then go find another partner to hitch up with. We are such a weird species. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Jody Aries and the murder of Travis Alexander has been sucked. Thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making Time Suck. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, Sophie the Fact Sorceress Evans for running point on this week's research, Bitelixer for continuously refining the Time Suck app, Logan the Art Warlock, Keith running badmagicmerch.com, being the visual artist for all things Bad Magic and working on our socials with Liz Hernandez, who runs our Cult of the Curious Facebook private page, along with the All Seen Eyes. Thanks also to Beefsteak and the Mod Squad running Discord. You can link to the Time Suck Discord group through the Time Suck app, uh, next week, we mix history and wackadoodle. We head back to the common era, to the first legitimate civilization on Earth known as Sumer in Mesopotamia. To explore the culture of the ancient Sumerians means we'll be celebrating some of the most amazing firsts in human history. Things we couldn't live without, like the first wheel, even the first fully expressed concept of time. So much more. The society came up with hundreds of concepts and systems we use today from government, taxes, land and sea vehicles, literature. Not to mention perhaps the most important concepts, uh, agriculture. You know, the written word, beer. We'll also meet a few prominent people and or wackadoodles who say, uh, amongst many other things, that the ancient Sumerian people were given all their groundbreaking knowledge of civilization and complex systems by extraterrestrials. More than 6,500 years ago, ancient aliens. Maybe it's giants. Story goes that aliens came here from a uh, rogue planet called Nibiru that came into our solar system or comes in almost every 3,600 years. And these aliens do Anunnaki, Apparently he came here to fuck with our DNA, throw some knowledge our way, and put us to work mining, above all things, gold. Why would aliens need us to mine gold for them? We will get to that. And so much more crazy next week. It's going to get goofy. It's going to get fun. Now let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates. Let's start with some laughs today. I uh, recorded this in advance in preparation for a vacation, so uh, no Dusseldorf emails yet. Uh, suckered sucker Josh gets Cummins lot. Josh writes, Dear Suckboy Master, John Bond Bonjangles, <laughs> wanted to let you know that you got me with the Cummins Law. I was at my new job at less than a month, a quiet accounting office. I was working on a spreadsheet listening to a random episode. I don't remember which one. When my Bluetooth headphones die, just as the master sucker declares loudly, and that's when he starts raping his sister. Nobody has said anything, but I am quite sure at least a few, of my few, uh, a few of my coworkers heard. This happened a few days after I thought to myself, I better be careful not to get Cummins lot at work. Sigh. Thanks for making my workday short and weird. Best wishes, probably not Albert Fish. Uh, everyone knows now, Josh. Everyone knows we listen to, right? So I say just play everything out loud from now on. Poophole, loophole, all the stuff. The damage is done. Lean into it. <laughs> now let's uh, hear some gratitude and inspiration. From a solid Utah sucker, Matt Dougal. Matt writes, hey, Dan, my name is Matt and I live in Utah. I've been a loyal listener since the beginning of this podcast and even before I was a massive fan of your comedy. This is going to be a thank you. This is going to be a long message, but I just wanted to thank you for your years of comedy and this wonderful podcast you've created. You've impacted my life greatly and have done so much more for me. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. It's been a really hard month for me. And your podcast has helped me laugh through these tough times I'm facing. I have some challenging mental health disabilities, some physical health challenges that don't make things any easier. I have autism and pretty severe anxiety and depression. The doctors think my heart is growing and I've started to develop arrhythmia. Three weeks ago, I got a CT scan of my sinuses because I've been coughing up blood and they discovered a mass they think could be cancerous. I guess that's life sometimes. 
I got an assistance animal to suggestion of my wife and through the help of my doctor and my therapist, I wanted to do the right thing and let my landlord know I was getting the support animal because I believe in living honestly. Well, my landlord decided that he doesn't want someone with my disabilities and my need for assistance animal on his rental property and told me I either need to get rid of my dog or leave his property. This really hurt me deeply and greatly stressed me out. Following night, my wife almost had to take me to the hospital for my safety because I wanted to kill myself. In the last two weeks, I have wanted to every single day. I guess I figured the only way out of this situation is if I'm not here anymore. If I didn't have these problems, the situation never would have happened. My therapist and my doctor told me what he was doing was illegal and that I'm supposed to be protected by the Fair Housing Act. Well, today he got an eviction lawyer involved and both of them seem to think he's exempt from those laws and that he can discriminate however he wants. Now my medical bills are mounting up and I need to find a new place to live. My wife doesn't deserve to go through this and I can't stop thinking about how the problem in the equation is me. Even right now as I'm writing this, the answer seems obvious that I need to remove myself so everything can move on in a better way. And your podcast has saved my life in the last few weeks. It's literally been one of my coping skills. Your humor and life outlook give me hope for myself. And I've heard about the other members of the Cult of Curious make it through hard things in the Time Sucker updates. And that gives me a small amount of hope that I can too. In my darkest moments recently, I've been religiously listening to your podcast. I'm a bit behind right now. I just finished the kidnapping of Patty Hearst and I was almost in tears laughing about the communist bug references you made. Thank you for the laughter. I don't know how I'm gonna get through this time in my life, but I know I can somehow. Thank you for giving me something to take my mind off the world and an escape from the problems I'm facing right now. Being discriminated against for my disabilities hurts and makes me feel worthless. I would never wish that on anybody. Thank you for your comedy. Thanks so much for creating this podcast. I said it before, I'll say it again. I'm eternally grateful for what you've done here. I don't know what the future holds for me, but I'm trying to wake up every day with courage. Hail Nimrod, you beautiful bastard. Keep on sucking for me, Matt. You keep waking up with courage, Matt. You beautiful bastard. Keep fighting, right? Because it's just better than any alternative, isn't it? I mean, you're far from worthless. You just wrote that message. You, you now know that someone you know else is going to hear it too that probably needs to hear it and you'll have helped save them and that is not worthless. And fuck that landlord, right? Just uh, keep, keep fighting just to spite that fucking landlord. If nothing else. Keep laughing. So many better days may be ahead and your days right now will be better with more laughter. Things are bad, but at least they're not vampire of Dusseldorf hitting you with a fucking hammer bad. At least you're not eating some Albert Fish's peanut butter butter. All right, your wife does need you. Uh, you got a dog who needs you right now. Don't let that little dog, you know, you you know, you don't protect that dog. Well, then the next uh, vampire of Dusseldorf is going to come around and fuck it. You know, those those people are out there. So just uh, stay strong as, as best you can. Thanks for sending that message. That was uh, very courageous. Love you, dude. Keep it moving. Uh, and now for a shout out from an OG sucker, Austin Stork. Austin writes, Hello, Bad Magic crew, but mostly Dan and Lindsay. My wife and I are OG time suckers. have been huge Bad Magic fans since the very few, first few episodes of Time Suck. Whether it's laughing our asses off about the newest Time Suck or the Secret Suck episode, talking about what story spooked us the most from scared to death or snuggling up on the couch every Wednesday night to watch the newest episode of Is We Dumb if you dummies can manage to figure out how to work the camera that week. <laughs> nice. Bad Magic has clearly played a huge part of our lives. Our last, or, or, excuse me, our five-year wedding anniversary is coming up on August 13th this year. And if memory serves me right, this is also yours and Lindsay's five-year wedding anniversary as well. It is. Uh, so as much as I want to congratulate you two on your five years together, congratulations. I also wanted to selfishly ask if I could get a big shout out to my wife, Erica, for our five-year anniversary. She's my Polish monster, my Lucifina, my Albert Fish. Okay, not the last one. JK, gosh dang on my heck. Best wife ever, three out of five stars. Wouldn't change a thing. The past five years have been an incredible journey and I love her so flipping much. If you happen to read this on the show, thank you so much for doing so. And thanks for everything you do and everything uh, at Bad Magic Productions, making this world a brighter place for many people. OG Bad Magician, Austin Stork. 
That was very nice, Austin. Happy anniversary, Austin and Erica. Happy five years. Uh, I hope you two are still uh, in love as much as Lindsay and I are. After five years, may she always be your Lucifina. Hail, hail love. Right? Love inspires love. Keep pushing it forward. Keep setting that exam example. Gosh dang. And you know, if you guys are into it, maybe uh, maybe loophole that poople. I don't know. Maybe do some chest talking. Spice it up. Uh, now one more from Smart Sucker Sarah. Sarah writes, Hail Lucifina and all her minions. I said before that I will mention your podcast in my Serial Killers class. I also wanted to praise you for your TED Talk that will be making its way into my media class. Honestly, I've preached these ideas from the pulpit of my college podium for years. I've not really found a video that explains my feelings about the penny press and yellow journalism quite like you do. I'm not a political person. I will vote for whom I believe to be the best candidate, which has been hard in recent years. I struggle being at an extremely liberal college where I agree sometimes, but not always. We will put it this way. I am a conservative, gun-loving, country-loving gal with a big heart. I've always preached that socialism leads to communism, but there are attributes of socialism that are good and decent. I just don't want the D student doctor working on me and waiting months for MRIs or CAT scans. I hear you. So weird. Any who think, uh, so we, oh, so weird. Anywho, thank your perspective. Uh, it is hard these days to find that. Um, my media class exposes a great deal of, if it bleeds, it's leads commentary. And I also have my students watch Nightcrawler. Fabulous. That is a great fucking movie. That's a really good movie. Actually. Uh, I, I love to use the word meat sacks as my favorite TV show of all time is Supernatural and they use the term meat suits. I didn't know that. Keep on sucking and being you. My degree in psychology and your overall work is me to a T. Uh, Sarah, you made this dummy feel smart for a second. That, that was, thank you very much. Thanks uh, for that. I'm glad you find a, a kinship in my perspective. Uh, it makes me feel less alone to hear it from you. So, you know, what, you, what I did for you, you just did for me. Uh, hear you on politics. Yeah, I'm open to either side uh, on any given election. And it often feels like I uh, I don't love any of my choices. Uh, but I will say things seem to be going pretty well right now overall for many. And that makes me happy. That's whoever's in. Just like, uh, just have life uh, appear to be getting better for many. And okay, on board. Uh, glad our economy is doing a lot better than it was in Peter Curtin's time from last week. And I'm honored, yeah, that you use me in a class. Keep teaching. Keep teaching. So important. Keep preaching common sense critical thinking. Uh, the more you do, uh, the better the world, you know, for all of us. And so hail Nimrod, country gal. Uh, that's all for this week's Time Sucker updates. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. Uh, thanks for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast, Meat Sacks. Uh, please crawl through any ex's, uh, or please do not crawl through any ex's doggy door. Or, you know, crawl naked into bed, hoping to get your poop hole loophole this week. Uh, just, uh, just keep on mouth hugging. I mean, you know, sucking. Hey, Dan. Yeah. Have you seen my spoon? Oh, your spoon? Oh, that, that's my. That's my spoon. No, I don't have. I don't have a spoon. No. No, that's my spoon. No, I'm not holding a spoon. I'm not holding a spoon. I don't know. What Dan, I don't have a spoon. You're holding a spoon right now in your hand. You're tapping a spoon in your hand. No, I'm just. That's my finger. I have a metal, a metal looking finger. Uh, not a spoon. Nope. No, nope. Can I see nope. it for a second? I, I, I would let, I would, if I had a spoon, if I had a spoon, I'd give you a spoon. Mine has the same, the same handle. If Is I had a spoon. little fist on the bottom of the I, handle? If I had a spoon, I'd, I don't, nope, no spoon. Oh. Don't have a spoon. Okay. Wish I did. Wish I could help you with the spoon. Okay. Wish I knew, what a, wish I knew where a spoon was. Oh, all right. That Jody Arias Jedi shit works sometimes. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. 
I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.